Planning a trip to one of the great national parks? L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit llbean.com explore. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst, Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey, everybody. It's Eric alongside Rod, and we're here for what I think is my favorite show of the season. It's the pregame, the preview of the season with Michigan State. And we're going to go in-depth in the team and who's coming, who's gone, and then obviously what's to come. We've already gone through the first other 13 teams in the Big Ten, and Rod has Michigan State placed second. So we're going to discuss Michigan State's prospects this season. Before we start, I want to do a little housekeeping. Firstly, I start with off with the um, with our donors. We really appreciate people who are supporting the show. We've done a lot of things to add to the show. We've enhanced the audio. We've worked on... A website we have a forum now which i'd encourage everyone to come and visit our intention is always to have this fully accessible to all spartan fans so there'd be no fee no charge and nothing behind a paywall and so for that reason we really really appreciate the people who've already signed up and who are financially supporting the show uh, namely the people at the dream on green level you can go to patreon.com slash msu tffinots and there you can find ways to support the show on a monthly basis and so people on the Draymond Green level are Dan Rankin, Adam Walzak, Doug Robinson, James Benton, and also Mateen Cleaves level, Chad Hickey, who uh, at that level you get a some merchandise. And we're going to have, we're designing a t-shirt right now. We're working on that. And so we'll have that out hopefully within the next month or so. I also like to thank Greg Brown, who did a one-time gift via check. You can also make uh, donations through PayPal to support the show. And we really, again, really appreciate those. And I hope that you really appreciate what we've put forward uh, with the addition of the website. Also, we're on YouTube. We're trying to get a little bit more active in social media. And finally, I'd like to thank you, if, if you've not already had the chance to, thank you in advance, to continue supporting the show by subscribing, liking it, sharing with other Spartan fans. As we're now getting into the season, because we're just about to the point where now, as we're recording this, we're a little over two weeks away from, actually, three, a little over three weeks away from the start of the season in the November 7th game against Northern Arizona. Roddy, you ready to get into this here? Yeah, let's do it. Uh, all right. So let's recap Michigan State season. We talked about this a little bit earlier the, in summer, but we'll recap again that Michigan State finished the season 23-13, and 11-9 in the Big Ten, losing in the second round to Duke in a game that it was, although it was a nine-point loss, it was a game that I think we both agree that Michigan State had a real chance of winning, but they were up by uh, four points uh, with less than four minutes to play. Uh, Michigan State finished the season number 42 in Ken Palm, number 31 on offense, and number 67 on defense. They shot the ball really well from deep. Uh, number 16 in the nation at 37.8% behind the three-point line. They were 70th in free throw percent at 75%. And weaknesses were not surprising in the sense that they had trouble with turnovers at number 209 in the country. In two-point percentage, number 184, and finishing 90th in offensive rebounding percentage. On defense, Michigan State was number 22 
nationally in block percentage, but it didn't actually translate into as much success in the two-point percentage with the defense uh, and finishing only 128. Uh, and defensive rebounding percentage, a rebounding ranking of 123 and 66 against three-point percentage was a strength in the team. And so it was kind of a mismatched sort of team stats, things you don't expect, I guess, at Michigan State, although probably we we discussed last year and the year before, the de- the rebounding has been a bit of, bit of a problem the last couple of years. And, you know, the turnovers are kind of what they always are every season. But I think there's just a decreased efficiency from the two-point percent, which is, again, two-point shots, which is unusual. And defensively, probably struggled a little bit, but probably in, in part because of the rebounding problems. Yeah, so l- let's take them one by one. On, on the offensive side, you know, for all the carping, and believe it or not, there was some about Michigan State shooting last year from deep. It's remarkable because they're one of the best three-point shooting teams in the country. Um, but their inability to shoot well from two and really a very un-Michigan State-like performance on the offensive glass, finishing at number 90, um, those two things kept what, despite the turnovers, could have been an outstanding offensive team and made it merely a solid one. Um, The two-point percentage is attributable primarily to two things in my mind. One is that Michigan State, and this is not a big shock, it, it tends to happen every year, but as they got into Big Ten play, it was tougher for them to get into transition. So easy baskets in transition, which tend to boost your two-point percentage because you're shooting a lot of layups or dunks, right? Um, Those weren't there with any frequency. But the big thing, of course, was that Michigan State lacked consistent post-offense. You know, occasionally you'd get it in spurts. You know, Julius Marble might have a strong game. Um, Marcus Bainham might chip in with some post buckets, although his contributions tended to come in some other ways. Um, so, but a lack of consistent post offense. And then again, with the offensive rebounding, a lack of consistency in terms of second chance points, you're going to hear this word consistency over and (laughs) over in the discussion of Michigan state season last year and, and what needs to change for this season to be better. Because that really was the core of the problem in, in my mind is that success was intermittent because MSU did not get consistent execution. So offensively, those were the areas that were problems. Uh, people harp on the turnovers, but truth be told, it wasn't a, a super unusual Michigan State team in that regard. What was unusual, what we don't typically see were the things I just mentioned didn't shoot the two well, didn't offensive rebound particularly well. On the defensive side, the issues were similar. Um, And again, just as on offense, unusual by historic ISO standards. Um, You know, normally if you see a team that's got a relatively high block percentage, the way Michigan State did, that's a sign that it's not always the case, but more often than not, that's going to be a, at least a decent team against twos. Michigan State was terrible defending against twos. Yeah. And, and part of it was, despite the fact that they had 
you know, a seven footer in Bainham with great length and then a veteran behind him in Julius Marble, Michigan State's post defense really struggled at times. I mean, I don't need to tell any listeners this who saw the games. You go back to the Hunter Dickinson game in Ann Arbor and really even the one in East Lansing, even though Michigan State won that game. Um, you know, what Zach Eady was able to do on and on and on. Big men just really gave Michigan State problems in the post. Uh, But in addition to that, I think despite the fact that MSU had some individually pretty good perimeter defenders, they were still just too lax at times in terms of giving up dribble penetration. And you do those two things, you're going to give up a lot of success uh, to opponents from inside the arc. And that's exactly what happened to MSU. Compounding the problem, defensive rebounding, which has been an, an ongoing issue, in my view, for the last several years, even even in some seasons where Michigan State had a very good overall season, it's been a, it's been a problem. It's been a while since Michigan State has really rebounded well on the defensive end. And last season, it was rough. So you do those two things poorly, they kind of feed on each other. Um, That's going to mean you have problems as an overall defense. And Michigan State did. Uh, This was not a good defensive team. I I thought in the early stages of the season, I thought it had a chance to be a really good defensive team because Marcus Bainham was playing at a very high level, and that gave MSU – the interior rim protection presence that they had lacked the year before. Um, And then again, I thought they had a collection of perimeter defenders that I thought could be pretty good. Uh, It did not turn out that way. After a decent start to the season, once they got into conference play, Michigan State really struggled to find themselves defensively and never really figured that out. So, um that was a problem. And, and again, the lack of consistency at both ends was the single biggest thing. And if you look at MSU's seasonal performance, just in terms of wins and losses, once they got to back into conference play, so yeah. early January, you saw a team that could just never sustain success. Um, You know, I I go back to you think about arguably the high point of the regular season was the home court win against Purdue, right? Where Tyson Walker won it with a jumper as the clock was winding down. Huge win, right? Felt like, okay, this is their chance to build momentum going into the postseason. Three games left. Right after that, they had back-to-back road games at Michigan, at Ohio State. In those two games, immediately after the win over Purdue, MSU played arguably their two worst games of the season. In fact, I don't even think it was arguable. I think they were were their two worst games. (laughs) No question. Then they bounced back, managed to beat Maryland, but, you know, Maryland wasn't a great team last year. You just, right to the end of the regular season, you had no clue which Michigan State was going to show up. And then finally, I felt in the postseason – which was a five-game run between the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament. Even though they only they only went three and two in those games, I think they finally found a level. You know, they played very well in the Big Ten tournament. They got wins over Maryland and Wisconsin, and really pushed Purdue before losing by five in the Big Ten semifinal. 
And then in the NCAA tournament, beat a Davidson team that I don't think anybody really wanted to play. And then, as as you said a few moments ago, really took Duke to the wall. The final score was very deceiving. Michigan State led with four minutes to play and had been right there the entirety of the game. Um, so I think they finally found it. It's We're not used to seeing that. Um, we typically see Michigan State find themselves – uh, mid February. Yeah, right. I agree. Right, yeah, February is kind of the time. Yeah, even, you feel, you start feeling March coming, right? Right. Even the COVID year, they found themselves probably with about two weeks or so to go in the regular season, right? And they had to because they needed all those wins to get into the tournament. But they they got them. Um, this team was different. They just they could never find that game in game out consistent level of play until they actually got to the postseason and then it showed up. I think over those last five games, even the two games they lost, you saw Michigan State playing a good, solid, consistent brand of basketball. And so, you know, on the one hand, I guess you say, well, it it goes to show that even if they don't show it in the regular season, you don't bet against Michigan State figuring it out when – you know, when the games mean the most, uh, on the other hand, I look at that and inevitably I think, why did this not show up sooner? Why did it yeah. take that long to find it? And, and again, it was a, it was just such a weird disjointed season because this team started out, I think it was 14 and two. Yeah. I was going to say we started 14 and two, five and on the big 10, but I think, you know, the, the pivotal moment, it was Marcus Bingham getting COVID and I don't yeah. know if it was COVID itself that where he was out for a while and he probably couldn't practice as much. And well, he only missed one game, but yeah, he was, but, he was but he wasn't the same, right? For a while. Absolutely. Yeah. He came back a different, he came back different and, and he was, and I think in some ways you can look at it and say, well, that loss of continuity or the, um, you know, strength as an inside, which, cause Marcus Bingham at the beginning of the season, I think we were looking at him as a strength and that that, yes. that was a real, uh, defensive stopper, and we're like, wow! Despite all these big player, you know, these big guys in the Big Ten, we might see we'll be able to compete against those guys. Right. But then you saw even guys like Joey Bronk. You mentioned. I mean, we're talking about Zach Eady and Hunter Dickinson, which you can, you know, apologize it away, say, well, either you're playing really great postmen, but Joey Bronk torched oh, Michigan State too, right? Ryan Ryan Young, and I mean, and you Ryan Young, on, right? A you backup, on backups. On with, you're right with guys who were not were not the upper tier big men but just gave Michigan State fits. No, you're right. And I think I think that was I, I'm hesitant to say that was the only issue because that overlooks a lot of other things. It overlooks sure. Malik Call being in and out all year. Mm-hmm. It overlooks Joey Hauser really struggling in the first half of the season to find himself. Um it overlooks the inconsistency from the lead guards. Um but I think if you were going to point to one thing that changed, it pro- Bainham's probably as good a place as any to start because they were a better team in November and December with Marcus Bainham playing at a higher level. It really gave them an offensive presence inside that, that changed things. And so when that went away, when he wasn't in there, wasn't as good, Michigan State became a much softer team on the defensive end. And that's that's really where I think, you know, you could talk about offensive things and fans always tend to gravitate toward that because it's easier for those who, who don't really understand so well what they're watching to, to think that they grasp. But 
the truth of the matter is Michigan State struggled the way that they did last season, primarily due to what happened on the defensive end. If you look at it, you're the number 31 offense in the country. Eh, that's not, that's not so bad. You could be, if you were a typical Michigan State defense or even close to that, that offense was good enough to win a lot more with than MSU did last season. You know, um, yeah. it was a defensive end where that, where they really, really got hurt. And, and Bainham was a big part of that, both, po- both positively and negatively. And I think in, in addition to that, partly Bingham and, and, you know, it's not fair. Like you said, there's so many other problems that happened last year, things you could point to, but uh, I think, you know, Bingham and the five and the, the problem with rebounding, which is also a wing issue, right? With you have uh, the guards, not right. Christie and, and Brown and Malik Hall. I would argue that was the issue in terms of rebounding, because if you look at what guys like Bainham, Joey Hauser, to an extent Malik Hall did, those guys did well enough that yeah, I, right. I don't think, I don't think the post guys were the problem on the boards. It's, it's been a wing problem for a while now, in my view. Yeah, and then and then that sets you up for all the other problems, right? You have you give up the offensive rebound, and now you're out of position, and your your opponent's two point percentage is much better because they're yep. you know they're you're not in position, you're disconnected, and usually they're close, right? You're rebounding probably close to the basket, you can tip it back in or something. Uh, and so I think that a lot of those things, again, they don't pivot just on uh, Marcus Bingham, but really his departure, even when Michigan State was winning those those Big Ten games. You know, the first two games in December, they looked great. And then he got, he had COVID, whatever, and then came back and they just, you just were waiting for it, the shoe to drop because they were winning, but they didn't look very convincing and they're not playing top competition. And then, you know, then the wheels look like they started coming off. And then all the other things that were problems that sort of were papered over by the fact that they were doing so well defensively uh, got exposed. Max Christie struggling, Uh, Joey Hauser, the guards not, you know, being a, Walker being too hesitant, things like that. I think all those things sort of come into focus when you're not doing the things that you should be doing that the fundamentals that, you know, Michigan state relies on, which is the rebounding and defense. It it was just, again, two straight years where you've seen them get off to good starts, which is not always the case for Michigan state. You know, we're used to slower starts and in many seasons, just disjointed, inconsistent, kind of baffling play because we've seen things not just intermittently, but for a sustained period of time that we're just not used to seeing from Tom Izzo team. So I think, you know, heading into this season, that's one of the big, big things to watch for in my mind is do we see Michigan state getting back to who they are, what this program has been. And that, that sounds like a cliche, but it's, it's really important because the areas in which they've struggled the last two years, in my view, primarily have been areas that are traditionally program staples and we're not used to seeing them struggle in or be inconsistent in. And yet it's happened. And, and then you look at the results, the way these seasons have gone and you say, okay, well, I guess that stuff really does matter. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think you can, you can sort of put in the sort of ambiguous, amorphous category of leadership, right? And I think yep. you look at Cassius Winston, as soon as he leaves, you have a team that really doesn't have a leader, doesn't have a certainly floor leader, which you expect to be your point guard. 
and then looking for other people to fill that role, which is, I think, a little harder when you're like the, you know, like Aaron Henry, when you're not the someone who's got the ball all the time, you know, bring up the court. And I think you, and someone who probably wasn't, uh, it probably wasn't his personality so much to be that sort of that leader in the on the floor. And, they, the and they didn't they didn't feel he. And last year was the same way, way, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think last year was the same way. So that when there are problems, there's no one to kind of kind of like you know get the rudder pointed the right direction. You sort of kind of drift around a little bit. I think you saw a little bit of that last year too, where just sort of a team that looked like it was clicking suddenly nothing couldn't do anything right, and there was no one there to sort of correct those things on the court. Right, and and they they definitely. Uh, we're lacking in that way. And that's something that, you know, Izzo has spoken to in the preseason here, and he does not sound entirely convinced that they've completely solved it. But I, I think that from, from what I understand, uh, I think they feel they're a lot closer than they've been. Um, you're not going to have, and this team does not have a Mateen Cleaves, a Travis Walton, they they just they don't have that they don't have that kind of presence, okay. But you don't always have to have that kind of guy. You have to have people who have been through it, who understand what it takes to win, what the, the level that you have to play at, how hard you have to play, and who are going to be vocal about that. And I think that they believe they may have had a couple guys develop into that. We're gonna see. Yeah, uh, but that's a big test, you know, specific to AJ Hogard, and we'll return to this again as we as we talk about this team. You know, people could talk about improving the jumper, improving the decision making, getting in better shape. All that stuff matters, absolutely. But to me, the single biggest thing is has he become the kind of teammate and the kind of leader that they need him to be? And we're not really going to know the answer to that until the lights turn on, you know, until we actually see this team playing and, and for a while, not one game either. It's going to have to be over a period of time to really be convincing. Um, I think he's confident he's made strides. I think they're optimistic that he's made those strides, but we need to see it happen. And that's a big deal for this team. You know, I I've, I've had these conversations on our board, on the Spartan Mag board, you know, it, it to me, such a big factor for this team. And you saw it talked about at Big Ten Media Day. We're we're recording this on what is it, the 13th of October? So Big Ten yeah. Media Day was just a couple just a day or so ago. You saw this theme where people talked about MSU's backcourt. And the reality is for whatever questions might exist elsewhere. If you are really, really good at the guards in college basketball, you should be a competitive team. It is a game that is in the level of the game, I should say, that is impacted so disproportionately by the quality of guard play you get. You look at Michigan State two seasons ago, they didn't have it. They struggled. You look at them last year, they had it sometimes and sometimes <laughs> not. And when they yeah. had it, they looked pretty damn good when they didn't, they struggled. Um, if Michigan state's guards are as good as they think they are. And as I think we think they are, it's going to elevate the whole thing. And so that's not all about AJ Hogard, but in part it is for sure. And, mm -hmm. and he's the guy in that group that I think 
has the best chance to be the kind of leader that they've lacked the last couple seasons. You know, yeah. they need someone they can turn to who can rally the troops, who can get guys back on track when they're not playing the way they need to. Um, all of those types of things, in addition to the actual tangible contributions that he makes on the court, they need someone to do those things. And he would be the most likely candidate at this stage. Right. And I and I think, you know, to a lesser extent, Tyson Walker would be the other one in that position where he's a, someone who's very talented. He can he has a lot of energy he brings to the game. He can be put a lot of, you know, defensively. He can be a pest. And he certainly has shown signs, and although the, he is sometimes too timid, right? I think that the timidity is what, what, uh, what, and, and, but you wonder if now he's more comfortable in the system, can he be that second leader, right? Like you could have someone when maybe AJ is not on this game that Tyson's there to back him up or vice versa, but, but we have to see it, right? We'll that's, see. that's what I mean. Izzo's been extremely high on his summer. He has said repeatedly he had the best summer of anybody. So that's good news, but. I did not see indications last year that, that I think Tyson Walker is ready to flip that switch. I, I think that realistically you are hoping that he is more consistently aggressive in terms of the way he plays, but he's probably not a guy that you're going to look to, to galvanize others. Right. You know, to me, well, that's a personality. Now I say that, it doesn't Michigan state has had successful teams without anybody who really did that. You know, you talk about Cassius Winston, Cassius Winston was not a yeller and a screamer. No, no, absolutely not. He wasn't a guy. And, and truthfully, probably the guy who was closest to that personality on those teams um, was Xavier Tillman and Xavier Tillman really wasn't that either. So those teams were extremely successful, you know, two back, two big 10 titles, a final four berth. And, didn't really have that kind of personality. So I'm not saying I think it's a necessity, but I do think the one guy who seems to have that kind of personality is Hogard. But in order for that to matter, his head's got to be straight. He's got to be the right kind of teammate doing the right kind of things to make any of that matter. Yeah. And I think, and I think oftentimes when it comes to this leadership, the most important thing is you have someone on the team who is convinced that you're going to win and that, no matter what's going on, things are going to be okay. And I always felt that way with Cassius Winston. You know, they might be down five, six, whatever, and you thought, well, he's just going to say, okay, it's now my turn. I'm going to hit a couple threes. I'm going to, you know, make some plays. Yeah. And same thing with Tillman. You you always felt comfortable that they were they were not going to panic. And I think and I think you have to have people who have that sort of confidence to to feel they've been those places and they've overcome whatever it is, and then the rest of the team can feed off of that. And I think that that is probably more important than just someone yelling at you. That's a good, that's a good point. And I think that, um, you know, it, it remains to be seen with this team because coming into the season, nobody has that kind of credibility yet. Correct. But yeah. going into the 18, 19 season, nobody on that team had that kind of credibility. I mean, Cassius had been a good player for two years, but he had not been a, a big 10 player of the year level guy. And Xavier Tillman wasn't even starting. Right. So, yeah. so you can develop that. You can prove that to your teammates and become that kind of guy. And that's what Michigan state needs to happen because they're not bringing anybody back. I mean, the, the reality is, as we're going to talk about in a second, you know, the top three scorers are gone. 
you know, they don't have anybody now. Now that's not as big a deal as it sounds because MSU had a <laughs> bunch of guys all bunched up between say, you know, seven and 11 points a night. Um, but it does mean that there's nobody coming back who could say, Hey, I was a second team, all league guy, or, you know, something like that. You don't have anyone with that kind of proven performance under their belt. So it's down to the guys on this roster to um, prove that they are, they have elevated their games to the point that they are now that reliable. Right. Well, let's talk about the players lost. I mean, I think most people will remember this. We have first is Gabe Brown, who was six, uh, eight, uh, played every game. He scored, led the team in scoring at 11.6 per game to your point that just no one who is a dominant scorer on this team. And it was, it made it, Difficult to cover, but also difficult to, to game plan, like how are you going to get your points? He shot 43, 38, and 89. A solid year uh, and showed occasional real flashes that he was getting you know, a bigger game, but he just never quite got maybe rebound as well as we would expect it. He averages a little under four rebounds a game. Uh, and good defender, but many points a game, he'd disappear for 20 minutes and then, you, then he'd you know be there for a couple of minutes. Streaky shooter. Uh, could, when he's on, he was great, but uh, you know, a a guy who was, I think we talked about this before. He's, he's a guy who is your great second or third option for scoring, but not a good first option score, which is what they really needed last year. I, I you know, it, it's, it's unfortunate for him that the, the, the senior version of Gabe Brown didn't have the chance to play with say a junior or senior season Cassius Winston type or yeah. a Denzel Valentine, a truly great distributor, because that's what I think he really needed. Um, Gabe was not a guy who was capable of doing a lot of creation of his own offense. You know, um, Occasionally you'd see a burst of something, but it never happened in a sustained fashion. So consequently, he's a guy who needs to play off others. And... Michigan State's play, obviously, his junior year, Michigan State's play at the point was just not good at all. Last season, it was sporadically good. And so I think that, in part, led to Gabe having a sporadically good season in turn. You know, if if point guard play wasn't consistently there, it was going to be hard for Gabe to impact games consistently himself because he re- really did need to be a spot-up shooter. Primarily, that was his role, right? Yeah. The biggest disappointment for me with Gabe was the rebounding because I felt as if he could and should have been a better rebounding presence than he ended up being. And I think that was part of why Michigan State struggled. So I think he had a solid senior year, but you'd hoped for a little more. Yeah, I think he had every reason to. You look at his physical tools, and I mean, great athlete. I there's no reason to think that he's not going to get five and a half rebounds a game. You know, for his, the minutes he played and his size, is it? And I don't know. It's probably hard to figure out why that happened. If it's just uh, lack of focus, or if it's he was playing outside the line too much, and so he couldn't really get into get the rebounds. I don't know. I but it, I mean, the other re- other wings have been able to rebound and shoot three too. So I don't. Right. It just one of the it's one of the questions we have, and we'll never have the answer to, I suppose. Uh, next would be Marcus Bingham. Bingham uh, decided to skip. He was eligible for a COVID year and decided to graduate and go pro. Uh, and like we mentioned before, he got COVID in December. 
miss a game and sure seemed like he had some uh, in stamina issues and just at least uh, be as active as he was earlier in the season. He got back at the end of the season. He finished really well. He averaged 9.3 points a game and averaging a little over six rebounds a game and two blocks a game. He shot 53, 42, and 75. And he really started at the very end really exhibiting that three-point shot that I think we saw a very brief glimpse of his freshman year and didn't really see much yes. of until the end of last year. And then you thought, well, if only we had another, you know, two months of this earlier in the season, it could have really made a difference. But, you know, maybe that's just him getting his legs under him from the COVID. I mean, may, a guy like him who's sort of struggling to, to put forth that maximum effort that he needs to be real successful, you know, it took him a long time to get that that endurance back. I don't know, or stamina. But either way, it it left a lot of you know, a lot of wanting. Like you just had you you wish you had a little bit more or more time with him. But of course, he's moved on, and so is Michigan State. Yeah, you know, I think it would have been interesting if he'd opted to come back for one more go around. I can understand wanting to move on. The fact is, for for all of the I'm going to keep using this word for all the inconsistency in Marx's game. If you trace his progression from his freshman year to last season, he really did have a, a scope of improvement. Oh, you yeah. know, his his senior year was actually a pretty good year. And if you told people before the season that he would put up the numbers that he put up, I think most would have taken it. You know, mm-hmm. um, the problem is that in November and December, he showed some glimpses that suggested he might even be capable of a little bit more. Yeah. And again, that got torpedoed for all the reasons we've already discussed. Uh, I do think it was interesting to see his, his three point shot finally get dialed in because that was one of the things I, I vividly remember seeing him. I had not seen him and wasn't really even tremendously aware of him as a high school player in Grand Rapids and the summer after his junior year, which is when he really took off. I was watching Spice Indie Heat because Brandon Johns, who was an MSU recruit at the time, was on their team, and and Marcus Bingham was playing with them, and found out he was a kid from Michigan. And who's this kid? Who, at the time, maybe he was six ten, but he was still long, just not as long as he ended up at MSU. But he actually showed a three point shot. He showed range at that level, and that had a lot to do with why he became very heavily recruited in a very short period of time because he had this combination of great length and a suggestion that he could actually stretch the floor. You mentioned in, he showed glimpses of that as a freshman, but that was in very, very, very limited volume. Yes. He just didn't play much, but the next two years, we just saw no consistency at all with the shot. And then last season, it was really the tail end of the year that boosted Mm -hmm. that number above 40%. Uh, But he finally did. He found that level. Um, It was good to see that finally come back. And, and honestly, the Marcus Bingham that we saw last year was the type of player that people thought he could be when he was being recruited. It's just that the hope was he would reach that level earlier. And that just didn't happen. And I think, I think he's a guy who, oh, uh, he probably got hurt a little bit by the COVID year, you know, mm-hmm. by that summer. Yeah. 
that spring developmentally that, that off season. Yeah. yeah. It, it, you know, maybe he would have hit that stride as a junior rather than as a senior. Um, you never know, but, um, you know, his, his departure certainly leaves a hole for Michigan state because although Marcus was not a total solution at that position, he definitely did contribute. And now Michigan state doesn't have that. So that's a problem that needs to be solved, a, a hole that needs to be filled. And uh, next would be Max Christie. So five-star recruit, 6'6", freshman wing. Uh, he was defensively very strong. For a freshman, I think there's no question. He was he was head and shoulders above most freshmen that coming in, understanding how to play defense. And um, the problem was he was came in as a shooter, and he just – did not shoot really well. I mean, he was okay, but he shot 38, 32, and 82 in the season, averaging a little over nine points a game. Uh, not a lot of rebounds. I think it was like about two rebounds a game as well. And decided to go pro at the end of the season. Kind of a weird sort of end exit. There's discussion with uh, his family and friends and handlers, I guess you call them, uh, and sort of what was going on at Michigan State. So I don't know that we probably know the whole story, except that the usual sort of exit from the team was a little different than, than typical. doesn't seem like a whole lot of bad blood. And, and so he decided to go to the G league and to go pro, which was always his, his goal. And I think he was hoping to be a one and done, but certainly with his performance in the court, it, it didn't really, it, not surprisingly, he didn't translate into a really high draft pick. And so he's now playing the G league. And I, I don't know, I guess I've not watched any of the games, so but it sounds like he's struggled with a shot, not surprisingly. And hopefully he's able to get that around come around just to just to make it clear he's not definitively in the g league okay um he's trying to make the lakers roster and i suspect he will bounce back and forth it would not surprise me if he sees some nba time this year just because of the way that load management works injuries etc but uh, the your overall the overall thrust of what you were saying is correct i think that there was probably an expectation in, in, from those around him and probably from himself that uh, he would be in a much stronger position. He would be a guy who would be in a position to spend an entire year on an NBA roster. And I don't think that's very likely. Um, it's funny how it worked because my concerns coming in were, how's he going to hold up on the defensive end? And as you said, he was pretty <laughs> yeah. steady. Yeah. Not quite as good as I think his reputation had it because at times his lack of physical strength hurt him, but overall pretty solid defensively. It was the offensive end where it just, it just never came together. He never found from day one, he never found consistency with the jumper. And that was really supposed to be his strength. He also, in my mind, never made good on the suggestion that had been out there that he was a guy who maybe you could use as an offensive catalyst. You could put the ball in his hands, let him create for himself, for others. They tried that at a few points last season. They gave him that opportunity. It did not go well. Um, and I think so much of what ailed him last season really came down to strength. I really do believe that. I don't think it's that he lacks a skill set. I don't think it, he's actually maybe a little better athlete than I think people thought. Um, so he doesn't lack in those areas. He's just not very strong. And when you're not strong, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to power through contact, to play through contact. 
in a league like the Big Ten. Um, again, it can be hard to be consistent defensively. It can be hard to rebound. All the things that when I watched him struggle to me, most of the time what I thought was at issue was that he just wasn't physically ready yet to be a dominant player at the collegiate level. With another year of strength training and working out, et cetera, he would be in a much better position. Well, he's opted to do that as a professional. Good luck. Um, yeah. I, hope it wor- I hope it works out for him. I don't mean that dismissively. Yeah. I-, I hope it works out for him. Um, but yeah, it, it was the, the whole way that it went down was, I mean, I'm not going to rehash all that stuff, but, um, that did not, from what I know, and I, I'm pretty confident I've, I've got a reasonably good read, at least as to the general contours of, of how it all went down. I, I, I wasn't happy with that, but, um, I guess the way you look at it is if that's the situation better that he go. I think so too. You know, yeah. you I, don't want somebody who isn't happy or has people, influential people around them who aren't happy, um, you know, poisoning the well. And I, I don't know that that would have happened if he'd returned, but I, I, I'm okay with the way things worked out. I think it was, a disappointing year for him to be sure. And, and I guess we can leave it at that. I will, the one other thing I would say is when you look at what he actually contributed last year, I think that's how fans need to think about it. They're replacing what he actually gave them, not what he might have done as a sophomore. Right. You yeah. know, and I think that reality is a lot easier to deal with. Right. And I think you can, yeah. And you can look at it and say, well, he averaged 10 points a game or a little over nine a game, but he also had the most minutes in the game for, for any player, I think last year. And yeah. so, and he wasn't, you know, efficient. in some ways he wasn't efficient. And I mean, you watched him and this is the, the frustrating thing. Of course, the fans, you watch him and he, his shot looks good. I mean, it looks like he's got a nice form. It looks smooth. It just wasn't, it wasn't going in, which of course is the only thing that really matters. Uh, and that's, and that was the, and so I guess, you know, to replace nine points, well, that's hard, but for someone who's averaging, I think it was almost not 30 po- minutes a game. I'm not, yeah, I don't think, me, but I don't think it's that hard. It, so I think it's, it, it's, it's very doable. And I think, but I think to that point too, there aren't many Spartan fans. I don't think who are concerned about the loss of Max Christie. I mean, it, there's, there's not much consternation about what are we going to do, you know, without at the three without Max Chrissy. People aren't worried about that at all. They're worried much more about the five. That's that's true. And I also think part of what helped that along was word getting out to some extent. I don't I don't know how deeply into the fan base that the way that it all unfolded got got out there. Um, yeah. But certainly among hardcore fans, I think a lot of them are aware, at least at a basic level that this is probably for the best that it unfolded this way, you know, also, also tells you, and I mean, there's a, there's a bigger picture lesson here, which is, you know, fans always fall into these traps of assuming that you get a McDonald's all American, you get a five-star national top 20 guy, however you want to couch it, that that's, that just solves your problems. It doesn't, you know, those guys have to play. And it wasn't even just East Lansing. <laughs> you look at Michigan with two top 10 kids. Those guys didn't get the job done. 
I mean, it's it's not a given. And you have to you have to understand that. You can hope for the best. And sometimes guys who are ranked at that level actually do make good on it, but sometimes they don't. And you know, we just saw that at Michigan State. So you have to be careful making those assumptions, I guess is my point. Absolutely, right. And and you've mentioned this before, you know, you, your video game numbers, you can't just add somebody averages right. 10 points a game, you put them on and they're going to give, you know, that they're going to give you 10 points because they're in a different situation, different team, whatever. But I think, you know, you look at some a team like Can- uh, Kentucky, which has all highly rated players every season, right? They it seems like they're always loading up. And I mean, not to say, I don't want to say here it'd be foolish to say that they don't have success. But sometimes you look at the recruiting classes they have and you think, oh, this team's winning national championships in their final fours all the time. Well, they really aren't. I mean, Calipari is not, I was actually surprised. I looked over it and he's won one national championship, which I mean, that's good, obviously, but he's not winning like multiple ones at Kentucky. So it's not like there are, there's an easy formula for success at any level. And certainly, and, and I think that's been exhibited, but it's easy to, it's easy to get lost in the thing. Well, you got someone highly rated we're guaranteed to win. Well, you're obviously not. And so, yeah. Um, well, let's move on to the last uh, player departing is Julius Marble. Uh, he was a, a late transfer out of the program after the season. Six, eight junior had his best season easily at Michigan state. He averaged a little over six, about six and a half points a game, 3.3 rebounds a game, shot 59% from the floor, 77% from the line, which is a huge improvement over the previous years. He really, uh, that did a lot better there. And he played about 15 minutes a game. So not a ton of minutes, uh, offensively very consistent, but his deficiencies were the same in his junior year as they were his sophomore and freshman year, which were uh, just not super strong defensively, not a great rebounder, uh, and he ended up deciding to finish his engineering degree at Texas A&M. And so he's, he's of course, he, along with Bingham, that's a huge departure in the five spot. But I guess, you know, in some ways I feel like, yes, you're losing someone like Marble and you'd rather have him than not have him, but it's not... Uh, an irreplaceable part that's that's departed the team. No, and and honestly, I think th- th- this is where I slot in on it. Julius Marble had obvious an obvious strength, which was his offensive ability. He could score. Decent low post player, not a not a great post player, but a good one. So not a Nick Ward, but you know, solid. But he also had a good mid-range game. You know, he could stick the 10 to 12 foot jumper face up, which is a nice weapon to have. So good offensive player. Defensively, I thought he had his best defensive season, but that's also not saying much. Um, (laughs) He was actually reasonably good as a post defender last year, even though he's outsized most of the time. Um, But in pick and roll, he just continued to struggle. Yeah. So that was an issue, but again, better than he'd been. It was the rebounding that just didn't improve. And that was the thing that really had me discouraged about his potential to be much better as a senior because he's never shown an ability to rebound. And, and that's, I don't think he's lazy. I don't, I, I do think he's, he was the strongest guy on the team. I think he has a level of toughness. But part of rebounding is instinctual. You, you have to have a sense of where the ball's going to. You have to be able to 
you could say read angles, but it's it really is almost instinctual among the guys who are really good at it. That they know they just know Dennis Rodman's a guy I always yeah, think about right. where he just knew, just knew where he's going. Yeah. And Julius Marble does not have that. He was, despite the fact that I don't think he's a bad athlete, um, he never showed much of an ability to be a range rebounder, which is also really important that you can go out of your immediate area to go chase a rebound down. He was never very good in that way. So it was just, I didn't see any sign that that was likely to improve. And if that wasn't going to improve, I would be worried about him playing a larger role. He said he played 15 minutes last year. Well, if he'd come back, there would have been a temptation to probably play him 20, mm-hmm. you know, cause he's a veteran. He can score, you know, a, a kid like Jackson Kohler has great offensive tools. I think he's a better offensive player than Julius Marble anyway, but let's, let's just say they're similar there, right? He might also struggle in the areas that Marble struggled, but I don't know that there's a chance because he's young, he could get better. I'm pretty convinced the Julius Marble that we've seen is the Julius Marble we would get with one more year. I just don't think there's a lot of reason to believe that he would have gotten much better. And, and if that's the case, I'd rather go with the unknown, you know? Yeah. Marty Sissoko again, another, I'd, I'd rather go with the unknown that, that that's distinct from, from Marcus Bainham. If Marcus Bainham had wanted to come back for another year, I would have taken that all day long. Oh, sure. But Marble, yeah. I felt very differently about. So I wasn't all that broken up. Would you rather have him than not? Yeah, I guess. But I just, I don't think he showed that a breakthrough was coming. Right. You didn't, you felt like, not that he hit a ceiling, but that he wasn't going to get significantly better. Whereas, you know, Bingham, you felt like, oh, this. I think he hit a ceiling. I think he showed you who he is. You don't think he could get better this, even this year? I don't think there was. Now, offensively. You know, would he have been capable of maybe even a few more big outburst games? Yeah, he probably would have scored even more points, but that 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 would not solve what ails Michigan State. Michigan State primarily does not need scoring out of the five with this team, right. in my belief. They need rebounding and defense. And I just yeah. don't think Julius Marble was going to provide enough of it. All right, so let's talk about players returning. We'll start with A.J. Hogard. Definitely a season where he really took a huge jump up. Uh, as you've admitted many times that you were wrong about A.J. Hogarth as a player who you didn't think was a good recruit and didn't think he was going to be able to pull it off. And I think most people probably agreed with you. And I guess he's one of those players you'd say the like sort of clicked uh, last season where he was able to take the point responsibilities a little bit better. And then hopefully, as we were talking earlier, that maybe he's moved on to uh, more of a – he'll be more of a leader this year as well for as a teammate – so he had his ups and downs. Uh, he averaged seven points a game on 44, 22, and 63 shooting. Led the team in assists at 4.8 a game uh, at about a two and a half to one assist to turnover ratio. Pretty good defender, which he wasn't his previous two years on the team. He shut down Jaden Ivey in one of the games. Uh, he's obviously a super strong guy, very good going to the basket and um, being able to finish oftentimes. And so I, you know, I think the, the question marks with him are 
the two obvious ones, one is, you know, can his shooting get better? He shot 22% from behind the arc. Can he improve that to like 30s or 30 or a little bit more maybe? And the second thing, of course, is, is he going to be a better teammate? And is he going to be able to distribute the ball and, and be able to be that floor leader and a leader off the court as well that I think this team desperately needs? There's a, there's a lot to like. There are things that A.J. Hogarth does extremely well. As a guy who could get to the rim and finish, he's as good as they've had in a while. And he does it differently than we've ever seen a Michigan State guard. You know, you think about somebody like Cassius Winston, it was really not overwhelming athleticism, but just a knack for being able to create space and finish. Guys like Keith Appling, Kalen Lucas, just pure jet blur athleticism and some toughness to finish. You know, those have been the kind of guys that have been very successful. A.J. Hogard, it's it's pure brute strength. I mean, he just, he overpowers smaller players and he's strong enough and tough enough to finish over and over bigger players and through contact. So he's a hard guy to contain when he's able to play downhill because of that, his physical tools, and he's got a good enough handle that he can get there without turning it over. So that's a big strength. I maintain, and I said this a few times last season, he is the best throw-ahead transition point guard they've had since Cleves. Most of the guys who have played point guard under Izzo in that the last 20 years since Cleves left have been guys who advanced the ball via the dribble. You know, so you think mm-hmm. about Kalen Lucas, Keith Appling. These guys usually in transition, it's them dribbling the ball up the floor quickly. Cassius Winston, although he didn't have their speed, was more of a dribble guy, too, in my opinion. Hogard throws ahead. He see he's got great vision and he's got an ability to make, you know, the three-quarter court pass, half court pass, and hit guys. Um, that is a unique skill, and it is something that really will help your transition game when you have a guy who could do it at the level that Hogart can. So that's a real strength as well. And you mentioned his defense. He really emerged as a defender. You know, his freshman year, he showed some glimpses, but then he also had games where he had no idea what he was doing. Yeah. Last season, it, it kind of all came together. That game against Ivy was tremendous. But he had other ones too. You know, his his the important part for MSU is that because of his size and his strength, he's versatile enough that you can play him in combination with Tyson Walker, which I think we're going to see a lot this year. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. You say, well, they're both point guards. Yeah, but Hogard can defend wings. He has that kind of versatility. He can also guard point guards too but he's big enough, strong enough to handle bigger guys as well. So those are all really nice things to have. The two things that have got to improve are the ones you highlighted. The first is an obvious one, which is shooting Uh, 22% from three. That's hard to live with, you know, how much better he's going to be this season remains to be seen. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll see him tick into the thirties somewhere. I think with his ability to penetrate, if he's even 30% from three, that's a big deal. Mm-hmm. You know, just be good enough to force teams to respect you. Although I will say this, the funny thing about AJ Hogart is 
when I think about guys like uh, Tum Tum Nairn or um, Xavier Simpson at Michigan, guys who had real trouble shooting as point guards, and you remember how defenses would play those guys. They would just be, you know, the defender would be eight, 10 feet off them. Yeah. Just daring them to take the jumper. Guys didn't defend Hogard that way. Hogard was not defended for the most part the way a 22% shooter from three should be defended. And I honestly don't know why. Uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me because if you sag, theoretically at least, that should put you in better position to deny him dribble penetration to the rim, into the lane. Um, and you're daring him to take the jumper, which is seemingly what you would want to do. But I did not notice opponents defending him that way very much. And I'm not quite sure why, uh, but anyway, that's just an aside. So shooting would obviously be one thing you'd look for improvement on. The other thing is much more of an intangible. Um, I mentioned this in the spring. I had pretty good word that it was very touch and go toward the end of the season as to whether Hogard would be back. And then he seemed to figure it out. We, you know, we talked about how MSU found a level in the postseason. A big part of that was AJ Hogard. And it wasn't even that he was putting up dominant scoring games in, in all those, in all those contests, but he was giving Michigan state the kind of presence, the kind of teammate that they needed at that position um, in a way that he hadn't always done earlier in the season. And, you know, you say, well, the, the assist totals were great. That's not all of it. There's a mindset that Izzo demands from his point guards. There's a way of relating to those around you that he demands. And Hogard has had a lot of ups and downs in those areas from what I understand. But the feeling is he's really turned the corner, they think, for good. And if that's true, that's going to be a big, big deal. That'll be a major positive for this team. So I'm bullish. I'm optimistic for eight with AJ. Um, but we've got to see. He's always reminded me of a guard who plays for Maryland. Okay, you'd be totally you would be. Yeah, no, absolutely. He's exactly the kind of guy you'd expect playing for the Terrapins. And I sometimes wonder. I totally agree with you too. It was unusual that you'd see a guy who can't shoot real well, and then people don't sag off him. But I do wonder at some point if you're a defender, if you're like, I'd rather take this guy. I'd rather be right on him than let him get a head of steam as he's coming at me. And then he's just going to go, maybe that's, maybe that's probably, I think that's probably it. I guess I just, even, even considering that I would still question it, but yeah, I suspect you're probably right. Um, that the feeling is I'm better off guarding him closely. So he's not able to build up any momentum getting to the rim rather than have to deal with him with a head of steam behind him. Um, but I, I still would question it. Guy shooting twenty two percent. You gotta do ev- you gotta do everything you can to bait him into taking those shots, I would think. It reminds me a little bit of Nick Ward, was it a couple years ago when suddenly everyone started double teaming him. You know, yeah. I think it was Ohio State maybe did it for the first time and he really he just couldn't pass out of it. He was throwing a turnover. He was he couldn't do anything. And then everybody's double teaming him because it's sort of like once you figure out the kryptonite, then everyone can, you know, they just, they watch the film. They say, oh, right. this is how you stop this guy. Maybe it'll come down to someone who just, who risks, you know, dares him. And well, says, we right, can, we can hope shoot. that he'll shoot well enough that it'll be a moot point. 
Right. Exactly. Right. And then, then you, then you're, you pick your poison and then I don't, right. you know, I don't know what teams want to do at that point. Uh, so let's talk about another player, Malik Hall, six, eight, uh, and it looked like all big 10 player at times. Uh, and then other times he would go a game where he scores like a two points. He averaged 8.9 points a game. He had 4.6 rebounds a game, shot 52, 43 and 69. I feel like he's probably, he was well over 50% for most of the season until the very end. He's yep. had some games where he kind of struggled. Uh, and so it, jump shots, obviously a big weapon. Uh, he can, he's definitely shown games where he can really score. And, um, and I think certainly they talked about this season and the end of last season that they, they expect him to play the three a lot more. So he's gonna play a lot more of the wing and, you know, with a guy who's shooting over plus 40%, if he can maintain that this year, I mean, that's a perfect place to have him. And he definitely has the athleticism, and the speed to get into, to, to score at the rim too, if he has to on the break. So he could be, it could be a really great role for him if he's able to adapt and play that position. You know, I, I've seen some people really question this, and I guess I get it because he hasn't been asked to do it very often. But I, I, I kind of came to this conclusion at a certain point last year. Malik Hall has a lot of Aaron Henry in his game. Um, similar kind of defensive versatility. Now, I wouldn't say... Malik's proven to be quite the individual defender Aaron was, but I think he's good or capable of being Mm -hmm. good. And at times last season, you saw Malik show exactly that same kind of deliberate post game that Aaron Henry had where, you know, they just kind of take their time. They're not, they're not blowing by people or just muscling up, but taking their time, using the dribble, to get themselves into optimal position to score. It's a it's a nice element to have in your game if you're patient enough. And Malik showed it at times last year. And then on top of that, he's got an element Aaron never possessed, which was a consistent jumper. Yeah. You know, Malik's right. been a pretty good jump shooter all three years, last year being his best, but it's not like it was a fluke. So you add all that stuff up. And I know I said this at times last season. I believe there's an all Big Ten player somewhere inside Malik <laughs> Hall. I really yeah. do. At his best, you, you look at that first game, the game in Madison, where MSU beat Wisconsin. There were there were moments last season where you saw it. And then the next time out, as you said, he might score two points and and take three shots. Yeah. It wasn't right. even just that he had scored, it's that he wasn't active. He wasn't imposing himself on the games at all. So that's the issue for Malik Hall. It is not a talent issue. And, and, I, and I say that even with the talk about him playing the three. I think physically he's fully capable of doing it. The question is his mentality. Is he ready to be a guy who is more consistently assertive than he's ever been? Because Michigan State needs that Malik Hall night in, night out. If they get that, the ceiling of this team gets raised. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, you you watch him. By the he, way, he's definitely... it's not me. It's not just me that says this. I, I have it on very good authority. Steve Smith told him he could be a pro, meaning a guy who plays in the NBA. There's no question. I mean, you watch him, and not only can he shoot, but like you said, he can create his own shot, and he can, yeah. and he can score. And I mean, those are like, those are pro-like moves, right? I think we saw that occasionally from Aaron Henry where he said, this is yep. a 
this is, yep. you know, the nine, what do you, you talk about the 99% difficulty shot and, you know, you're making those consistently. The thing that, like you said, Aaron just couldn't hit the outside shot, which is going to limit your ability to you know, go a long ways as a, as a pro. But yeah, I, I like the, f- and I think this, this theme comes up with a lot of players, right? If the mentality changes, this could be a really special season, right. a really special player. And, you know, is, is are all these lights going to go on this season? That's really going to be the question. Yeah. Speaking of lights going on, I think last year we had one with Joey, Joey Hauser, 6'9", senior. He decided to come back for this year because I think at the end of the last couple months of the season, he really just had fun playing basketball again. For the first time, he looked like he wasn't it wasn't a drudgery being on the court where he was just the weight of the yep. world was on his shoulders. He averaged 7.3 points a game, 5.3 rebounds a game, and probably our, I would say, our best defensive rebounder I, he, yep. consistently like he would yep. he was always in the right spot uh, he shot 45 41 and 86 and that 41 is impressive because he was not shooting well at the beginning of the season so that he really brought that up uh, through really good uh, second half shooting and then he was instrumental in the win of David against Davidson the first round of the NCAA tournament and uh, he's a guy who by all reports you know, they would Izzo would mention occasionally he had a lot of problems with COVID and just the isolation and it's easy to forget, and I have this. I struggle all the time because you see these guys who are—they're just big guys. It's hard to—I mean, it's easy to forget that they're 18, 19, 20 years old. Your formative social years, right? And so, if you—some people just—that that social isolation really, really bothers them more. And yep. you saw lots of kids have those struggles. And I think Joey was one of those guys. And so the fact that things kind of got back to normal, he sort of just can kind of—he could as things return to normal, basketball got came back to the way it should be, and. I don't know. I think I think that impacted him probably more than other players, and for whatever reason, that's just I mean, his personality. So it's it was good to see that he like a kid who was out there enjoying himself because I think we've had a couple tough seasons or at least seasons that were had parts where we were struggling, and it was just it was hard watching him because it just you knew that the crowd was sort of like why is he playing and he should every I would you know at the Breslin Center every time he put up a shot everyone's kind of groaning and you can kind of just feel that energy. And just like a few years ago, where every time you should say would shoot a free throw at home, where they weren't shooting, they were shooting like seventy percent at home and eighty percent on the road or something like that. Uh, you can kind of feel that sometimes in the in the arena, and that was definitely the the energy with Hauser, at least through like January, and then it he turned it around. So it was that was a really good thing, to, encouraging thing to see, and obviously encouraging for the future. I think also part of it is that I hope this will remain the case this year. We'll see. I think what also helped him is I, I thought they simplified things for him. You know, there was a lot of hype around Joey because he was an extremely highly rated recruit, went to Marquette initially, transferred after his freshman year to MSU. And Izzo really talked him up during the year where he sat out. And yeah. and then he had a very he had a good start, but then it it went south pretty quickly two years ago. And then last season, rough start again. But thankfully, he didn't give in to it. He kept coming. I thought MSU stripped it down for him a little bit in some ways. Weren't asking him or letting him, depending upon your perspective, do as much <laughs> with the ball. Yeah. Now, what's interesting to me is I've seen Ezo quoted in the last week or so talking about how both Hauser and Hall have the green light if they get a rebound to go and lead the break themselves, you know, be their own outlet man, a la Draymond green. Uh, that's okay. If Joey has really fully solved his, his confidence issues, 
I'm a little bit nervous about that. I got to see it because that's an area where he, I felt he got into trouble trying to do too much at times. Uh, but that remains to be seen how that works out. Bottom line is once he found himself, he shot the ball extremely well. As you said, he was the one reliable defensive rebounder they had. Always seemed to be a good position, you know, did what he's supposed to do. Um, and I thought he got a little better defensively. He's never going to be a great individual defender, but I thought he got better. Um, how he gets used is going to be part of the story this year, too. We mm-hmm. we know he's going to start at the four, which is a natural position for him. The question becomes, how much time does he get at the five? Last year, he played more at the five than I think he wanted to or that Izzo wanted him to, but it happened out of necessity. You know, they'd have foul trouble or whatever it was. And, you know, I, I just have memories of, of games where Joey had to guard guys like Dickinson in the post and it didn't always go <laughs> yeah. well. He played hard. He fought those guys, but he's physically just not that big. And, and over the off season, I gather he's lost a little more weight. Mm-hmm. So he's even less bulk has less bulk to throw around than he did last season. They are probably going to play him a little bit at the five, and I hope it's only a little bit. But what what I'm going to watch and pay attention to is those minutes Joey gets at the five. Are those minutes that Michigan State is dictating something, or is it because they don't feel they have a better option? And it's a very important distinction. I could see scenarios where they would want to use Joey as a mismatch guy. If you're playing him against Michigan, for example, there might come a point in that game where you think you're going to get more out of Dickinson having to guard Hauser than the other way around. You wouldn't want to do it for like an eight-minute stretch, but for three minutes here, four minutes there, it might actually benefit you. You know, we're talking about a big oaf who can't move. Defensively, Joey Hauser could be a big problem because of the way he could shoot the basketball. But that would be a case where MSU is choosing. They are dictating a matchup. If it's like it was a lot of last season where Joey had to play because there just weren't better options, that's not so good. So that's one thing I'm going to watch for. But I'm optimistic that he's going to have a really good senior season, and I'm glad he came back because I think he's got a chance to – to write the kind of final chapter that he would want to his MSU career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, you can definitely see him where you, you bring him in and then he, you're causing all kinds of problems, like someone like Zach Eady or Hunter Dickinson right. who and, can't possibly come out and cover him, And he's just right. shooting over them. And, and, and yeah, if you'd exploit that, you saw it in the first Michigan game at Breslin, right. that is exactly what happened. There was a stretch you know, Dickinson really struggled. If you remember, Hogard tortured him in the pick and roll. But then there was a segment after that where he had to guard Hauser and he just couldn't or wouldn't get out to him. And Hauser killed him. Well, let's talk about Tyson Walker, uh, another guard, six foot senior transfer from Northeastern a couple years ago. He decided he could play another season, I guess. We'll see what happens. And that's probably the case with COVID. It's just kind of thrown all the eligibility rules sort of. It's made things complicated, but anyway, he averaged 8.2 points a game, 
good playmaker, good defensive presence. He had, I, he, I don't know if he led the team in steals, but he certainly had quite a few of them. Uh, he he was definitely a pest uh, on the ball. Shot extremely well, 43, 30, uh, 47, and 81. And I think no, nothing, I, nothing probably encapsulates his season better than the Michigan game in Ann Arbor in the sense that you had a guy who is definitely really good and yet a guy who's just not shooting enough because I don't, I know you were at the game and I was, I don't usually yell at the TV screen, but I certainly was that game because the guy was open for, I don't know how many 15 foot jump shots he had, which he could, he's shown ability to easily hit and how many of those he passed up uh, and then pass it away and then no one's open. And then suddenly you've got a, you know, five seconds left in the shot clock and there's just all kinds of problems. It, his lack of aggressiveness is sort of knowing when he has to pick his spots to, to, that he has to be the guy to score and when he has to be just dis- the guy to distribute. He just never quite got that until maybe kind of the end of the season. I felt like he definitely got more comfortable. And certainly when that, that response was taken away from by Hogard, when now he's the one who's, you know, playing alongside Hogard, he definitely seemed more comfortable and uh, then he's had other games like against Illinois and Purdue where he seemed like he was, he felt like he could score some more and I, th- and, and exhibit his shooting. So, I mean, I think, you know, for him again, it's the, can he figure out where his role is and, and pick his spots and understand where he's supposed to score and where he has to take a, you, cause you, that sort of situation like in Ann Arbor, you absolutely have to take advantage of that situation. Cause if you don't, then you've got nothing. And by doing that, it forces them to adjust and now other people can be open. But if you, if you pass up those shots all the time, you're actually hurting your team by not shooting. Well, go back um, a year prior to that, the Michigan game at Breslin that Michigan State won when they really needed a win to to make the NCAA tournament. Going into that game, I remember talking about it. said, Rocket Watts is going to have 15 to 18-foot jumpers available. He's got to take them. He's got to hit them. And he did. He took them and he made enough of them. And it was the same thing last year against Michigan as the year before. And part of the reason, well, the reason for that is Hunter Dickinson. Hunter Dickinson cannot move defensively. <laughs> he's a, he's an oaf. He's a stiff, a statue. However you want to phrase it. Great offensive player, huge problem because of his size and his skill set. But defensively, he is an issue for them. You have to be able to exploit that. And Michigan State in the game in Ann Arbor last year, you have it exactly right. And I was there watching it and screaming the entire time, (laughs) shoot it, shoot it, shoot it. And it never happened. With Tyson Walker, everything comes down to mindset. I saw enough last season. The talent level is there. Tyson Walker can be an outstanding college player. Period. I mean, full stop. He shot the ball extremely well last season. He's not the natural playmaker that Hogarth is, but he makes generally very good decisions with the ball. He, too, had an outstanding assist-to-turnover ratio and had a pretty good year assist-wise as well. Um, Defensively, he's a pest with his hands, and he's pretty good overall as a defensive player. The thing that you like best about him is his quickness and his handle give him the ability to create a shot whenever he wants it. You go back to that game-winning shot against Purdue when he got Trevion Williams in a switch, and that's exactly what he did. He used his handle, and Williams had to respect his speed 
Um, but he used his handle to create just enough room that he could get a clean look on a three and he nailed it. You know, he has that ability. The only thing that is maybe a little bit of an issue he's got to improve. He struggled some to finish at the rim last season. And I think it With was contact. Adjust- yeah. Yeah. Right. It was an adjustment for him playing against bigger people that he was used to when he was at Northeastern. And hopefully that'll be improved a little bit this season, but that, that's the one ding you could kind of get him with. Um, but, but marginal compared to all the strengths, but when you don't take shots, none of that stuff matters. And so it all comes back to mindset. Is he aggressive enough? Does he believe that he is the baddest man on the court? Because if he does, his game is such that he could do major damage at the college level. I have no doubt about that. Izzo has been effusive in his praise of the offseason he had. Um, I hope that translates to Tyson believes he's really good now. Because if he does, the Big Ten's in trouble. I think I think the, the most important person guarding him is himself. Absolutely. <laughs> the court. Absolutely. It, he kind of reminds me of Abrams from Illinois, don't you think? I mean, I guess, uh, Tracy Abrams. Tracy Abrams. Yeah, I think I I think he can be that player. I mean, I think he, I think he can be that good at the. At he's a unique. Year. He's a unique guy. I I I don't feel. I don't feel at least in MSU annals that there's anybody I would I would quite compare him to. Um, he's unique. You know, a good pick and roll player, obviously was an outstanding shooter last year. Um, But then I I, I look at other guys they've had that were really quick, like Lucas and Appling, and those guys were able to finish better, and yet they Mm -hmm. weren't quite as good shooting the ball as Tyson is. He's he's kind of his own guy. You know, I I think he could be primed to have a really good season, but it all comes down to his, his mindset. And he's certainly the player that you can see, as we saw in that Illinois game that they ended up losing, but and he brought him back and almost won the game. He can score in a flurry and a hurry, right? I mean, yeah. that, he has the ability to really, to that's, really influence the game I mean. significantly. I mean, yeah. if, he, if he believes he's the baddest guy on the court, he has enough game that, that that's not just bravado. He can, he can oftentimes, he could be at the big 10 level, a guy that nobody out there can deal with. He's the, right. he's good enough. He just has to believe it. Well, so next we'll talk about the one I think everyone's most excited about this season and seeing a breakout season. That's Jay Nakins, six, four sophomore, nice freshman season. He was able to, he had some really amazing plays uh, defensively where he, I don't early in the season where he came like sprinted three quarters of the court, came back and blocked a shot off a guy going for a layup. And I can't remember what game that was in. Uh, but he averaged only 3.4 points a game on 39, 38, and 61 shooting, but made his big impact on defending, getting a lot of rebounds considering he didn't play a lot of minutes. And from an athletic standpoint, I think he's probably the best athlete on the team. Yeah. Obviously, the other concern too right now is that he was in a boot. So he had a stress reaction in his foot. So he was in a walking boot for, I think it was like four to six weeks. He's been out of it now as we're talking now, I think like five or six days, I believe. Yep. And so the expectation is he'll be able to start on November 7th. I don't, or he at least will play. I wonder if he'll start right away in that, in that game, or if he'll start even in the exhibition game, probably not the exhibition game on November 1st against Grand Valley. But 
that would be the I think that would be the one concern you have obvious concern you have going into the season. Is he condition from a conditioning standpoint, is he going to be ready to play? And then I guess, you know, is he going to have the breakout season that everyone hopes for? I mean, obviously we'd love for him to turn into a Jaden Ivey or like a Jordan Davis where he's, you know, all Big Ten or National Player of the Year sort of candidate. But can he even get to the point where he's averaging 12 to 15 points a game, uh, dominating on defense and getting, uh, you know, three, four rebounds a game as well? I guess that's where that'd be the ideal scenario probably for him. And because yeah. and, and because he's shooting was pretty good for a freshman on somewhat limited volume, but he shot, he looked good and he shot you know, almost, almost 40%. Yeah. Uh, you know, up until the injury, the reports on him were just unanimously bullish. Um, and I, I, I still believe that that's likely to be the outcome. I think he's going to have a really good year health, how assuming health, assuming that he's healed properly and there are no setbacks. I, I think he's going to have a big year. This is a kid who's got all the physical tools and skill set you could want. I talked about Tyson Walker having the ability to create his own shot. Well, Jaden Akins has that too. And you saw that at times last season where he was able to use his handle to create space for, you know, step back jumpers. The thing we didn't see as much of last season that I suspect we will see more often this year is I think Jaden Akins has a chance to be special getting to the basket Mm -hmm. Um, with his handle, his quickness, and especially his burst, his athleticism. um, There is no reason that he shouldn't be a weapon kind of as a, a downhill player. And I think we'll see a lot more of that from him this year. I just think he'll be a much more aggressive player offensively. Defensively, he's already there. He just needs to do what he did last season. I think he was really good, and I think he'll continue to be really good. And then the other thing you mentioned that could make him really special is I think he's got a chance to be the kind of wing rebounding presence MSU hasn't had in a while. Um, He is an instinctive. I talked about somebody like Marble not being an instinctive rebounder. Jaden Akins shows you that instinct. And when you put that instinct together with toughness and a, a high motor, which he plays with, and the kind of athleticism he has, that's all a pretty good combination. So, again, health permitting, I think this is a guy who's set to have a really good season. And so we've, you know, we've spent a lot of this time talking about guards with Hogard and with Walker and, and with, with Jaden. Um, I think you could see why people believe Michigan State's guards are you know, as good as anybody's in the conference, I think they're the best. And that's a big deal. That's a reason why, you know, somebody wants to question, why have you picked them number two? That's why that's a very simply put. I mean, there are other reasons, but, but the big one is that if you want to be good in one area in college basketball, make it your backcourt. And I think Michigan state has a chance to have an exceptionally good set of guards and Aikens is a big part of that. And I think, you know, we talked about in the review of the season, just it's probably worth just mentioning one other time, you know, when going to the last season, there was a question what was going to happen to the point guard because I, Hogard was untested. It, he didn't look very good the year before. Uh, Walker was a you know new guy into the team. And so it was a chance like, well, Jaden Aikens is going to have to come in. He's going to have to play the point. He's sort of like, right. a, maybe he'll be the backup. Yep. Who knows? Maybe he'll be the primary yep. point guard. I, I, I absolutely thought he would see time on the ball. And, as it and turned they out, never needed him. 
Yeah, and he's got the skill level, so yeah. he can bring up the ball on a tr- on a on a break, and maybe you know Hogard's racing down the other side. I mean, you can see all sorts of different scenarios with this. He is less, and and I knew this coming in. He is more akin to the guys like Appling or Lucas, who came out of high school, had always been scorers primarily, even though they had the ball in their hand a lot as high school players, but they kind of had to learn how to be point guards. That's what Jaden Akins was. Um, the The difference is that he came into a situation where MSU had a couple guys who were much more natural at that spot ahead of him. And so, as you say, he never really got the chance. And, and I don't think when you look at how MSU is putting their roster together, both this year and going forward, I don't think it looks likely that he'll ever primarily be that. But he certainly has the ability you put the ball in his hand and tell him, go get us a bucket. He can absolutely do that. Sure. And, and I think, you know, had he been on the team two years ago, Oh, he would have gotten, a we turn. probably, absolutely. Well, yes. you, you would, I mean, he would have been probably forced to be the point guard and, and he may be the point guard. We're talking about this going right. to this year, right? It, so right. just by circumstance, he's probably in a much better, more natural position. Like you say, uh, where he's going to, you can utilize him best because you've got a good point guard. But, yeah. um, anyway, I, it's obviously going to be very exciting to watch and see how he does. And obviously we hope for, you know, health. It's always the concern, but it sounds like everything's fine. So, and, and we didn't even mention with Malik Hall, he also had a boot on for, he had a little bone chip or something in his much, toe. And so he had a boot on for a little while. Time, yeah. So he had a boot on for like a week or something. So anyway, so he should be fully going by this time of the season. All right. So we'll continue our discussion with Maddie Sissoko. <laughs> he was six, nine, uh, junior, he averaged 1.1 points a game, one rebound a game in about five minutes a game. And I don't know, was that probably two fouls per game in those five minutes? Or at least. Uh, but yeah, I mean, right. <laughs> he was a, a, he's a highly re- regarded recruit. Uh, he was a top hundred, I think. And top um, 50, top 50. Right. So he is a guy who is great leaper, got great length, definitely has high motor, has a lot of energy, a uh, lot of, he de- put leaves it all in the court. I mean, I don't think there's anything that he's, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't lack for effort. And what, what his problem has been, of course, is that he just, he struggles to rebound. I think more than anything, just rebounding without fouling and, you know, going over the back and things like that. And so can he play at the five? I mean, the expectation is of course he will be starting. Probably he wasn't the, the plan was not for him to start. It would have been marble had marble returned, but since marble's gone, naturally he'd be the one you'd expect to start since he's the, uh, the upperclassman, at the five and got the most experience, but he has, you know, very little time in the court bursts of times when it looked like he, you know, would block the ball into the second, second or third row. Uh, and he showed some actually decent offensive moves occasionally in the, in the post, but can he stay on the court? Can he stay out of foul trouble? Can he do all the, can he, can he actually be able to execute on defense more than just for a three minute stretch? And like in the pick and roll and things like that, which he wasn't really tested a whole lot last year because he was just hardly on the court. And when he did, he would not look great all the time. And so I think this is the biggest question mark going into the season. What is, what is Sissoko going to be like? Uh, you know, if you're looking at from last year to, to this year, what is the person who has to make the biggest probably jump? It's probably Sissoko. Izzo's made it clear this week that he's far and away the top guy at that position right now. So, if you're not a believer in Mati Sissoko's ability to improve, you probably took that as very bad news. I would suggest <laughs> that you shouldn't be surprised. 
Um, I have heard that he has made great strides in terms in two main areas. One, his understanding and ability to execute defensively, primarily in pick and roll, that they actually think he's got a chance to be pretty good. That would be a big deal. The second area is what you alluded to, and it's by far the biggest question in my mind, is I have heard that he, they think he's much improved in terms of his ability to play without fouling. That will be the biggest determiner as to what kind of impact he can make, I believe, is how long can he play while avoiding taking you know, silly fouls? He's Some guys never get over that. I go back to a, a recent example of this, and there have been other guys who fit this mold, but the most recent one I could think of is Gavin Schilling. Gavin, I was, he came Ga- right to mind too. Gavin <laughs> yeah. Schilling, obviously people remember, was built exactly the way you want a, a collegiate five man to be built strong six, nine. He was athletic. He was tough Had all of these attributes, right? But he had an inability to avoid trying to make the 10% play. And what I mean by that is you have, you have a shot go up and it's missed. And so a rebound comes off. You have to, you know, we talked about instinct being so important. Part of instinct is knowing when you have a legitimate chance to get a rebound or when you probably discretion will be the better part of valor and you let it go because if you try to contest it, you're far more likely to pick up a foul than you are to grab the board. A Gavin showing never quite managed to walk that line appropriately. Marty Sissoko has that same problem. Has he conquered it? Well, we'll find out. I think that's the big area with him. I don't think it's, you know, struggling in, in uh, pick and roll defense and, you know, guards drawing fouls on him or, you know, he's too aggressive going for shot blocks. I don't think it's going to be that stuff. I think it's going to be rebounding. That's where he's got to demonstrate that he's figured it out to the point that he's not going to be in instant foul trouble and thus unable to help. They need him. They need him to be an effective player because they need a defensive presence and a rebounding presence. And the reality is behind him, you've got two freshmen, um, the best of which those are his question mark areas, Mm -hmm. right? With Jackson Kohler. So you really need Mati Sissoko to be that guy. Um, The other thing I would say, Tom Izzo talked a lot this week about his decision in not going into the portal. And he talked about loyalty, you know, being a two-way street, loyalty of the kids to the program and loyalty of the program to the kids, not recruiting over guys in the portal, not just using the portal to go get a better player where you've already got one um, at a given position. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he talked a lot about that and where that really the only area for Michigan state this year where that was relevant was at this position. And specifically it means, do you go get a guy who you think is 
a better bet to be impactful than Mati Sissoko, or do you give Mati Sissoko the chance? And Izzo obviously opted for the latter. But more than just giving him a chance, Izzo believes that Mati Sissoko will be effective for them. Don't misunderstand that. He Izzo's not running um, you know, a charity. <laughs> He believes Mati Sissoko could play winning basketball. So that's why he didn't do that. Now, if it doesn't work out, is he going to hear it? Absolutely. But I, the stuff I've heard suggests that they think he's really turned a corner. We'll, we'll see pretty early, you know, how, how much he's, how much progress he's made. But the, the thing you have to remember about big men the, it is not like other positions. The light can go on in a hurry. And when it does, it can be shocking because you can see guys who previously looked lost all of a sudden look very much like they know what they're doing. Um, I, I, I point to Marcus Bainham. Had Marcus Bainham really given anybody a great deal of reason to believe that he was going to be a consistent player last year. Certainly he had physical potential, but he hadn't given people a lot of reason to believe. And he was, you know, he had a nice season. I, I think we could see something similar, but it's, it's obviously one of the biggest questions Michigan state is facing. Yeah. And I, th- I think if you look at to our discussion earlier about Julius Marble, we saw a guy who probably was near his ceiling, right? We didn't, you didn't watch yes. him play. It's like, oh, there's, there's something you can just see exactly. just to do what this thing or this other thing. So, so you can see like the tools are there. He just needs to kind of figure it out. Yep. And you always felt that with Marcus Bingham, but you just never knew again, if it was going to happen. It, it, unlike, like, a, unlike, you know, people talking about, boy, wouldn't it be great if we got Ryan Young, for instance, out of Northwestern, the backup who torched us. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah. But, but there was a guy, again, you knew what you had. And it wasn't like you're watching and thinking, boy, this guy's got another level to go. You kind of knew what Ryan Young is. And he's, you know, he could, there are other problems he couldn't run and those sorts of things. But, right. you know, it wasn't a player that you thought was going to be a massive upgrade where you can see Soko and think there's a, there's a lot of potential there. And maybe he figures it out this year or maybe it takes a couple of games. But you would you definitely want him to be successful or at least where he can stay on the floor out of foul trouble, even if he's not scoring a lot of points, just getting rebounds and maybe getting a bucket they here don't, or there. They don't need, they don't need, right. they don't need to be a big They don't need score. offense, right. But they right. want, they you you absolutely have an upperclassman there if you can to at least push the freshman because you don't want, if you feel like Jackson Clore is suddenly great and you need to start him, you still want to have someone back there who can come in when Kohler is struggling because he's going right. to as a freshman, especially in this Big Ten. And so you've got to have someone there who's effective and I think it was maybe on our board that I saw someone post an interview that Draymond Green had with Tom Izzo. And one of the parts they were talking about the transfer portal and, you know, Tom's talking about his disappointment or how the kids can give up and teams can give up on kids. You know, it sort of goes both mm-hmm. ways. And um, he said one of the important things, of course, is that you have to develop these kids. And and if you and the transfer portal, he's not afraid to use it. We've seen him take Tyson Walker when there's clearly a problem with the point guard, right? You had a Hogard who hadn't showed any signs of being able to do it. You had Rocket Watts who, you know, couldn't do it. So they, he definitely was willing to go there, but he definitely sees it. Definitely. It's like a, it's a, maybe not a band aid, but it's certainly something that you can't base your program on. You have to be developing the programs that are most successful are ones that develop their players. There aren't many Kentuckys and even Kentucky, like we talked about it. It's not like they're winning Final Fours all the time. I mean, they're they have established 
the teams that have established players are the ones that tend to be more successful. I don't want to. I don't want to say that you can't do it. There are guys who have proven to be very adept at utilizing the portal. Um, I think back to Chris Beard when he was at Texas Tech, and that was before the transfer thing really got going. You know, he was able to build a team that was very, very good, mostly with transfers. You know, and they played very coherently mm -hmm. together. Blah blah blah. Other programs have certainly proven able to fit guys in. You look at you look at Michigan two years ago. Does Michigan win the Big Ten without the contributions of guys like Mike Smith and Sean D. Brown? No. You know, they needed those guys. Um, so I don't think it's at the portal is universally a bad thing. However, each coach has his own approach and mentality as, and values within his program as to how he wants to build his thing. Right. And Tom Izzo has always been about relationships, about development, about, you know, having guys around for four years for, in most cases and players getting better over time. And that that's how he's won. And so it stands to reason that he would feel this way about it. You know, he's never been a guy who's wanted to go for the quick fix uh, type approach. Other guys have made that work, you know, and that's okay. You know, I, I, I don't think it would be, I think it would be disingenuous to say you can't win that way. But there is something to be said for the idea that when you look at the teams that have really been good in college basketball in recent years, for the most part, they have been programs that had a lot of veterans, a lot of guys who do, you know, you think about Jay Wright's teams at Villanova. Um, you think about Baylor, although Baylor had some transfers, but they weren't just one year guys. They were guys who were around for a couple of years in that program. Um, North Carolina. I mean, we can, we can go, we can keep going through it. Uh, Virginia, you know, a lot of teams in recent years that have been very successful have not been this transfer heavy or one and done heavy type um, construction. So there's certainly something to be said for the points Izzo was making. It's not even just about his program. You could see it elsewhere as well. I just wanted to be sure that we weren't, you know, I, at least I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm not of the belief that you can't win utilizing transfers, but it's pretty clear that it is not Tom Ezzo's preferred method. He wants to continue to do it the way and he's I think always the, done it. The important thing, of course, always when you think about transfers too, is uh, there's a reason people are in the transfer portal or the reason they're, they're either they're moving up. And so you don't know if they can compete at that next level. Like, right. You're moving from Northeastern to Michigan to, you know, the, the whatever conferences to the, uh, to the big 10, mm -hmm. or you have some sort of problem. Maybe there's coaching change, but maybe you had some sort of issue. Uh, so there's always a lot of risk, I think with that sort of thing. Cause you, and also to the point of Tom Izzo, when you relationships are so important to him, he knows these high school kids by the time they've committed and they're coming to the, I mean, he knows them as well as you're going to know someone versus a transfer. You know, you've got a phone call or two, maybe you've seen the guy in film and, and you just, you call a couple of people and that's like, yeah, this is a good kid or something. And that's like the best you have. And so, you know, it's, there's just, again, you can win. You see Mel Tucker won with Kenneth Walker. 
And then you miss on a lot of other people sometimes too. So it just can't be your, my point is that you can't have expect, it's just like you can't have a one and done sort of program to be very successful usually any more than you can have like a most, a transfer heavy program either to be used unless you're, some people are really good at, we mentioned this at the beginning of this, these previews with, um, Hoiberg at, at Nebraska, when he was at Iowa State, he was very successful with a lot of transfers. But, you know, that's an unusual sort of th- situation. Yeah, I think, too, you know, Izzo has utilized uh, transfers before. But if you look, if you look at the way it's gone, it's, it's often been of a type. So on the current team, Joey Hauser, well, that was somebody he recruited right. heavily when he was in high school. He knew him well. Aaron Harris wasn't a guy who MSU recruited out of high school, but he was from Indianapolis. They knew his situation pretty well when they got involved. Bryn Forbes, he was a Lansing kid. They knew him extremely well. Um, I could even go back to somebody like Mike Chappelle on the, you know, the national title team. Mike Chappelle was a guy MSU recruited heavily, lost him to Duke. He did a couple years at Duke, decided to transfer, come back to Michigan State. They knew him extremely well. Tyson Walker is even, even Brandon Wood, who was the first grad transfer they took. He was an Indiana guy, you know? So even if MSU hadn't recruited him, a lot of these guys, because of where they're from, they could get really good, quick reads on people they knew and trusted, you know? Right. Tyson Walker really stands alone as unique in that respect and that he was a New York kid playing in Boston. Now, Izzo has a good relationship with his coach at Northeastern, Bill Cohen. I know that, but, um, you know, it wasn't the normal kind of situation for MSU. So it's pretty clear, you know, you could say, and I've often said, Hey, Izzo's not afraid to take transfers. He's done it many times, but when you look at those situations, they tend to be of a type. They don't tend to be like, you know, oh, what say mm-hmm. Brad Underwood yeah. is doing? The f- you know, the flashy it, object different. out there in the distance. Hey, we'll take that. Yeah, and it fit, and it 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 fits with Izzo's general and line with model. Underwood's. <laughs> uh, so let's finish up the returning players to Pierre Brooks, six six sophomore, played very limited roles. Uh, he uh, averages a little less than a point a game talented uh he's definitely trimmed down i saw him play moneyball he's he and even when he was playing last season he did not lack for confidence <laughs> in his abilities and his, his shot so we right. so you would expect that he would still probably play the same way this year and i think you know it, the expectation he's going to be expanded role i it's funny because at times you you hear lots of talk about him and then other times people forget that he's even on the team so it'll be interesting to see what role he takes because he plays can play three can play the four you can definitely see he'd be probably one of the earlier players off the bench. He'd probably definitely get a lot more time than he had last than last season. So we'll yeah. at least know more what he is. And he's and he is trimmed oh, down. Yeah. He definitely looks different from a body standpoint than he did last season. So I think he's quicker. Look, I I like Pierre Brooks a lot, and I have you know I've, I've said this before. I actually saw his very first game in high school. Um, so I've known about him for a long time. I've seen him play for a long time, and even that first game in high school. I thought he looked like a guy who would eventually be very successful at the big 10 level and at a program like MSU. Um, You're right. He does not lack confidence and that's important. 
I also think he does not lack skill. I think Pierre Brooks is a very skilled player. I think he's a guy who's a capable shooter. I think he, because of his strength and his size, he can also score in some other ways. And I think he's kind of an underrated passer. The question for me last year was how would, how well would he defend? And I think, you know, at times that and kind of a crowded um, backcourt mm-hmm. situation, um, there wasn't really as much of a need to play him. That kept him in a more limited role. But yeah, I, I don't think there's much doubt that his minutes are going to expand significantly. And again, this is another guy, much like we were talking about just a second ago with Sissoko, but the same thing applies to Pierre Brooks. You could make an argument, okay, MSU feels pretty good about the combination of Hogard and Walker and Akins. But then what else do you have behind those guys? Well, you've got Pierre Brooks, who played sparingly as a freshman, and then you got a true freshman in uh, Trey Holloman, who we'll talk about in a minute. You could make an argument, well, you should go out and get a veteran. You'll get somebody who can give you 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes a night. And that sounds reasonable. It sounds good. But I come back to what Izzo talked about. He's not going to do that because he's he's going to give Pierre Brooks that opportunity to be that guy. And in the long run for your program, that's what you want. You If you're talking about making sure that your program stays good, it's better to have a sophomore, uh, assuming that he's capable of doing the job. Sure, sure. You know, he's got to deliver, of course. But wouldn't you rather invest those minutes in a guy who's going to be around beyond this year? And I, I think that's, you know, that's, again, part of Izzo's MO. Guys don't just magically become good as juniors and seniors. They become good because they get opportunities as freshmen and sophomores, mm-hmm. you know to learn, to develop. And so that's where Pierre Brooks is at. But I, I've always liked him. I've always been a believer in him. And I think the best is yet to come. And I think he'll be an important player on this team in a, in a rotation role. So let's talk about newcomers. Uh, the one we've mentioned a number of times, Jackson Kohler, 6'9 freshman for Utah, big time recruit stolen from the Iowa Hawkeyes, which has made my wife sad. Uh, and his, I guess the what people most describe him as, as far as former Michigan State players, is Zach Randolph and his uh, post moves and his ability to score inside. And, uh, of course, the question is going to be what you'd expect with any freshman. How does he play defense? Because probably most of the time he's playing, at least in high school, certainly he's playing against guys who are much smaller and uh, not as skilled. Uh, how does he play defensively? Can he rebound? Uh, is he able to figure those things out so he can, that you can keep him on the floor so you can exploit his offensive uh, talent against the, your opposing team? You know, I, and hopefully he's a guy, again, we're, like we're talking about the Sissoko, you'd love to have him as your backup. I mean, I think that if you could get a guy like this who comes in, it gives a change of pace, sort of like a different running back, you know, uh, you give a different pace of, of, to defense the other team to try to defend. That'd be the ideal situation. Maybe, you know, he plays 10, 15 minutes a game, you get 15 or 18 out of Sissoko, and then you get some either to Joey or uh, Cooper. I don't know. I mean, what your feeling is for Kohler. I mean, I know you're high up on him and you, you like him. Uh, do you, do you see him? Do you see him taking the starting role from Sissoko, I guess, or is that just going to, we're just going to have to wait and see. I think we're going to have to wait and see because I, I, I don't expect it early. I'll say that much. Um, but I, I, it's hard for me to know where either of those guys going to be come February. 
because I think they're both going to look different than they look right now. Um, I think Jackson Kohler is the most talented offensive big man they've brought into the program since Zach Randolph. I've been saying it since they signed him. In fact, you could make an argument that he's a more versatile player than Randolph was at that point in his career because Jackson is right. legitimately yeah, he can shoot outside. Yeah. He's got the ability to face up, stretch the floor. His post game is remarkable. He has his footwork, his touch, his understanding of angles, ability to use his body to create space. Doesn't seem to have a problem scoring against bigger kids. He did a lot of it in AAU and in prep school ball. Um, I think offensively, he's good to go. I think he would have been good to go last season <laughs> when he was still in high school. If you dropped him on a Michigan State's roster, I think he would have been their best low post scorer last year. The question is the other stuff. And we know, and anybody who's a Michigan State fan should know, the other stuff, how well you defend, how well you rebound. Do you run the floor hard? in transition are you a rim running threat do you understand how hard you have to play all the time those are the things that will actually mm -hmm. earn you minutes so that's the unknown um i think he will be able to score on anybody in this league i i don't think there are a lot of big 10 defenders that will be able to shut him down but how long can he stay on the floor to do that? That's the question mark. I think in the long run, I think his potential is extremely bright because I figure sooner or later, he will figure out the other stuff well enough, you know? Um, but how well does he have it figured out right now? That's an open question. Uh, I think it's safe to say he's yeah. the backup right now. Um, whether that changes, how much that means in terms of minutes, all remains to be seen. But yeah, am I am I bullish on his future? Absolutely. You love the fact that these two are going to be pushing each other to practice, right? You assume they're going to be playing against each other. That I love, I love that, and I also love this. You know, we talked about Michigan State having a real problem with its offense inside the arc last year, and part of that is really for two years running they've had trouble generating consistent low post offense. I don't know how many minutes Jackson Kohler is going to play, but his presence on this team automatically yeah. improves that boom period done deal. If they need low post offense, if they decide in a given situation, we got to have somebody on the blocks to throw the ball to and get some stuff done. They have that address now. He's yeah. that so good, I, and so the question of course is is he such a massive liability defensively that you can't afford to put him on the court that'd be the that and then again right <laughs> these are things we right. don't know just like with Sissoko we're not quite sure what we have until we have we don't know and it's hard man and it's it's just you know people don't believe this but this is the honest to God truth for as great as a guy like Luca Garza was Tom Izzo mm -hmm. never would have recruited him because he could not do the things that Tom Ezzo demands that you do for as great as he was as a scorer and a rebounder, he would not have fit at Michigan state. So can Jackson Kohler improve in those areas we're talking about enough 
to allow his strengths to really yeah. shine through. We'll see. I think he will eventually. It's it's sure. timing that I'm not. I, sure I guess of. you could say, well, you feel comfortable that he has the physical tools and abilities to do what is what needs him to do, and whether you know you get there's a. I think it's I think it's uh it's it's un it's not obvious I guess how complicated the defense is and how important is the the post defender is in in directing traffic or at least knowing where they're supposed to be and help side defense and so I think it's a really hard hard position to to learn and the at Michigan State well and it's also and it's also really difficult to evaluate um, when a guy is in high school even if they're playing as he did at a high level in terms of, you know, EYBL and playing for a, a high level prep school program, the way he did, it's difficult because you don't typically get tested the way that you will from jump at a Michigan state. You just, you, you are not asked to do the things that you will be asked to do when you are at Michigan state, typically at that level. So it's, it's really hard. And, and not just big men, but big men, especially even guards. I mean, if you told me rocket Watts or Keith Appling would be the defenders that they were as freshmen, I wouldn't have bet on that because they hadn't really shown it when I had seen mm -hmm. them as high school players, but they were, um, big men. It's even harder because you're just asked yeah. to play very differently, you know? And so, I mean, look, M Michigan state, they're not going to shack ball screens, you know, some programs Jackson Kohler could have gone to. They would have said, mm -hmm. you know what? We're going to hide you. We're going to do what Michigan does with Hunter Dickinson. We're going to let you shack ball screens. We're not going to expect you to figure out how to become competent playing up um, and learning how to switch and keep a guard in front of you well enough to survive. You know, we're just not going to ask you to do those things. But Jackson Kohler chose to come to Michigan State where he had to know that's going to be demanded of him. And he probably won't play a ton until he figures those things out. Right. You know, so that's that's a hell of a I've said this about other, you know, uh, to revisit this stuff. But, you know, other guys who Michigan State recruited who opted to go elsewhere, I think, did themselves a disservice. I, I always go back to a guy like Vernon Carey. Vernon Carey made a terrible business decision for himself by going to Duke because Duke was going to hide him. That's exactly what they did. Uh, and, and, you know, he's a fringe, he has a fringe pro career at this point. I don't know if going to Michigan state would have, would have solved his problems, but I do know he would have been a lot closer to figuring out the answer. And, and Jackson Kohler, I think, I think it was a very smart decision on his part to come someplace where they're not going to hide him just to get the benefit of his offense. They're going to make him figure it out. So next we'll talk to the other recruit is Trey Holloman. He's 6'3", freshman, uh, point guard out of Minnesota. He looked really good. Uh, I watched him in Moneyball, and I was really impressed with his shooting, and I did not know that actually his – the big knock against him was that he was not a great shooter. <laughs> and so I thought he actually looked – he looked really good. I, I thought right. – and it wasn't right. – uh, well, I I mean the shots were falling, I and they looked good. They, it didn't look like they were lucky. I guess like if I were shooting, so I, I thought he's impressive. I mean, I don't expect him to play a ton of minutes. He's probably going to play spot minutes here and there when there's weird foul trouble or you know, mop up duty, either maybe end of the half or you know the end of the game or something like that. But he's definitely someone who's going to be useful to have on the team. Yeah, I think it. You know, it kind of depends. I 
I'm not ready to make a prediction on that front because I think Trey Holloman is the kind of kid that could force his way into a bigger role than you think. Um, the shooting has been the weakness and I heard all summer that he shot the ball much better than they'd anticipated, which is a good sign because everything else in his game, you love, you know, he's about six, two, six, three, but long arms, he's got good length and man, he competes defensively and he's a good athlete. I think he's going to be a big 10 level defender right away. He is a real point guard. I think they'll play him on and off the ball, but make no mistake, as opposed to somebody like Jaden Akins, where I think he was a lead guard who they would have had to have taught how to play the point, Trey Holloman's point guard. So he gives you another option. Um, but I also think because of his size and his length, he can also play off the ball too. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not certain yet where I think he slots into the rotation, but I, I will say this, I'm not going to be surprised if we look up and he ended up averaging something like double digit minutes. It wouldn't surprise me. Well, it's a bold prediction, but you know, cause it seems like a clogged up spot, but maybe not. He's, he's, he's a competitor. He was a high level football player. You know, Izzo loves those guys. I mean, he just, he's the kind of guy when I look at the totality of it, I think to myself, that's the kind of guy Izzo was a hard time not playing. And, and in some ways, you know, those players are the perfect ones that Izzo has when when people aren't playing well, they're having a bad game or they're not, they're bad attitude or something. Hold people. Pull you, out, pull, you can see them pulling out Hogarth and say, all right, Trey, go in there and, you know, show them what to do or even for like Absolutely. a minute or two. Right. And then just kind of bring them out the next. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think he's just, he's one of these guys. I mean, he's not going to be a leader of this team as a freshman, but what I know about him, you know, I, I, I think that if you look at the way Izzo is recruiting, He's adding some guys. Holloman is one. I think that um, Jeremy Fears in next year's class is another. He seems to be getting some guys lately who are more the old school. As you know, we talked about at the outset of this, you know, demonstrative leaders, guys who will take a team by the throat and drag them. Well, Trey Holloman's got some of that in him too. Yep. So I just I see a. I see an equation there that tells me he's going to play. Yeah. Well, it is a clogged up position, but at, he may be able to make the most of his appearances because you know, he's going to get some because there's Walker, or there's either be fouls or bad play or something going wrong for a little bit. Well, here, here's the thing. Let's, let's keep in mind, Michigan state has what? 10 scholarship players, right? right? Or is it 11? I'm not sure. If, no, it's yeah. 10. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, Hogard Walker, um, Brooks, Aikens, Hall, uh, Hauser. I think white uh, is Whiten's a scholarship. That'd be the one question. He's a non-scholarship player. So it's 10 yeah. scholarship players. Um, you know, Tom Izzo isn't going to suddenly play seven guys. <laughs> That's just not who yeah, he is. Right. So Trey Holloman's going to play. It's just a matter of how yeah. much. Well, it'll be exciting to watch. And then uh, we'll finish out new players to, well, I guess we won't finish up, but we'll, uh, Carson Cooper, 
he's the uh, late addition. He was the six to eleven uh, player who's going to reclassify and uh, or is going to play another year in at, at IMG. He ended up coming to Michigan State as a redshirt for about three minutes, and then Julius Marble transferred to uh, Texas A&M, and then it I think sort of quietly became clear that he was going to be playing and not redshirting the season. And he's looked pretty good. I think he's a little more athletic than they anticipated. He's able to run the floor, which you, you have to with the Tom Izzo team. And so, I don't know. I mean, I think at the five spot, you're probably almost for sure you're going to see him. Whether you see him every game or not, I guess it depends on how the other two are playing and you know matchups, matchup dependent too, perhaps. But I think we'll we'll see a decent amount of him, I suppose, between five to ten minutes or something, I guess, if you just had a guess. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear he's not going to redshirt, which was the original plan, but um, he showed enough this summer. Uh, originally from Jackson, he said played at IMG. Um, kind of an interesting situation because I got to say, based on the clips from IMG and then the stuff in Moneyball and what I've heard about him uh, since he's been at MSU, this is not a kid who looked like the profile that he had as a recruit. It's kind of hard to understand, but, you know, sometimes even in the modern era, they do slip through the cracks a little bit. Um, he's six eleven. He could stand to add some good weight, but he's, we're not talking about Marcus Bainham as a freshman. You know, he's a little better put together than that, particularly the lower body, which is actually more important, uh, in my opinion. Um, good athlete, plays with a high motor, competes, uh, has a skill set. He's he's shown some evidence of a face-up game. Um, but there's still a lot of development to happen here. You know, he's got to get stronger. Um, his hands are reportedly, that's one weakness I've heard about. He doesn't have great hands. Um, so that's something that as a big man, you need to work on because, you know, being effective as a, as a pass catcher and pick and roll is important in the modern game. It matters. So he's got to get a little better there and he's just got to continue to develop and, and figure out what it takes to play at this level. Cause this is still fairly new to him, but He's the kind of guy that makes sense to take, you know, take a flyer on because he's got size, which you can't teach combined with some athletic ability, which you also can't teach. He was up until his last couple of years in high school, he was a high level uh, goalie goalkeeper in soccer. Hmm. And one thing about that position is you generally can't play it at a high level, unless you've got good lateral movement. So that gives me a little bit of faith that in time, once he gains a sufficient understanding of the concepts, MSU could have a really good defensive player at that position. Um, so there's a lot to like, I, I think he's going to be used somewhat sparingly. Let's hope because if he's playing a lot of minutes, that means there were right, problems yeah, right. one way or the other. But I, I like his future. I think it's a, I think it was a great move. You know, it came out of nowhere, but um, when you started to see evidence of what he can do, it's like, Oh, this, this, you know, you would have been happy if Michigan state had signed him back in the fall. Right, 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 right. You know, 
Absolutely. And if somebody had told me, yeah, this guy's a fringe top 100 recruit, I would have believed that based on what I saw. It's hard to understand how it it went the way it did, but that was to MSU's benefit because he was a Michigan kid who, you know, they they got connected too late and made it happen. Uh, so finally, we'll finish up with a newcomer, although he was actually on the team last year, but got injured in the exhibition game is Jason Whitens. He was a Western Michigan. I think he was a starter, a 6'5 wing. For a couple uh, years. Yeah. yeah so uh, good player, uh, good defender, guy who has a lot of energy. And when we were watching the game, the, the game, my son turned to me and said, that guy's a maniac. And then like a minute later, he blew out his ACL. Yep. It was really, yep. uh, really sad. And so I guess you don't know what you're getting... But I think it just adds, there's more depth here to this team than probably, I know people are talking about 10 scholarship players, but this is kind of like an 11th scholarship player Absolutely. in some ways, right? I think. Absolutely. So you've got, you're, you're not quite as thin as you maybe you thought you were. I mean, obviously a 6'5", he's going to be playing, he could maybe play the four if he had to in a spot or something like that, but he's probably playing at, you know, the two or the three. He was a guy that Izzo recruited. He, he won a class D state championship. I think it, if I remember correctly, I don't have it in front of me. I think it was at Powers North Central, which was a UP school. And he was an anomaly for a class D player from the UP. Like he was actually, you know, he looked not all that different than he looks now. He was very well put together, athletic. Um, and Izzo really recruited him as a preferred walk-on. But he opted to take a scholarship offer to Western Michigan, which you can't fault guy for doing that and he was a starter for most of two seasons at western now he never put up eye-popping numbers but when you're talking about a non-scholarship player who's got about i don't know 50 some starts under his belt at the d1 level <laughs> not bad to have as a backup. that's not bad yeah yeah and as you said we saw in those brief moments he played in the exhibition game last year he plays hard now, you know, I, I don't expect him to come in and shoot 40% from three or, you know, um, start leading the break or anything like that. <laughs> but as long as he's physically okay, and I haven't heard anything to suggest that he's not fully recovered, you know, this is a guy who could give you a little something if you need it. Um, you know, so it, it is a nice insurance policy to have. And I, I won't be surprised if he finds his way into the rotation here or there. Not big minutes. I wouldn't expect that. But, um, you know, you talked about Holloman being used as a guy, you know, at times maybe for accountability purposes. Well, this guy could fit into that role as well. Yeah, and you'd expect he'd have a level of maturity that would be helpful to the team as well since he's got so much, so many games under his belt. He stuck with it. I mean, you know, he could have just said, To come okay, back, that's right? It for, right? Yeah. That's it for college basketball. No, he wants this. So give him, give him, I think that means something too. All right. So you picked Michigan State to finish second this season. I actually have him picked first. And we're definitely outliers when you look at the media and you're looking at, the uh, most pundits and yeah, certainly not, not, some of the mag boards. Not well, people are like saying fifth uh, or sixth, or the, I mean, I've um, seen people say media, seventh or eighth. Well, the, the Big Ten, the unofficial Big Ten media poll, which is something that's been done the last few years. Uh, one of the guys, Brendan Quinn from The Athletic, has kind of spearheaded that, where they have a couple guys, I believe they have a couple beat writers from each school vote. Michigan State was picked fourth. 
Okay. So we're not that, you know, they're seen by, by people who cover this stuff. They are seen as an upper tier program. I think the Michigan state fan base, um, is struggling on a couple levels. One is there's still a lot of residual fury about Izzo not using the transfer portal. Um, yes. And the second is they look at Michigan State's team and they think, well, this doesn't look like a contender in the Big Ten to me, not realizing that the league as a whole, as we've covered pretty extensively in these previews, has question marks everywhere. <laughs> So this is not like even last year's Big Ten, where I could look at a Purdue, I could look at an Illinois and say, yeah, MSU probably, you know, if we had a couple teams like that in this year's conference, I would say, okay, Michigan State's probably not finishing ahead of those teams. But we don't. We don't have that. This is a league filled with question marks. That includes Michigan State, as we'll talk about, or we have been talking about. But they also have real strengths. And I would argue if you're looking to make a case for Michigan state to be bullish about Michigan state, the, the number one point is they are strong seemingly at the spot where you need to be strong. If you want to be good, which means guard play. If you have strong guard play, it can raise the level of everything else. Mm -hmm. It's not just a zero sum game. There's an additive effect oftentimes to that. And when you look at Michigan state, I think pretty clearly they have the best set of guards, at least on paper in the conference. Um, I would argue by a significant margin, at least among the better teams in the league, because if you look around the rest of the conference, a lot of question marks at the guard spots among these teams, even ones that I think will probably work out like Ohio state, for example, they're still talking about transfers, you know, yeah. Michigan state's got guys who have played. That's a big deal. And I think, uh, when I, when I look at this team, you know, you always look and you think about potential and we saw glimpses of a good team last year. We saw, and as we go through the, as we go through these players, there's a lot to like. There's a lot to think that it's not un. We're not expecting unrealistic advancement in the in play outside of maybe the five spot where we really haven't seen it from Sissoko. Right. But one through four, we expect either similar play like a Joey Hauser, uh, and then a you know minor elevation elevation from like say Malik Hall or Tyson Walker or Hogard. People who we're asking not to do amazing things, but just to get a little bit better. And this team can be, I think, significantly better than they were last year. You lose Matt, Max uh, Christie, but you're losing. I mean, that's you're going to have 30 minutes to replace him with someone who potentially is more dynamic and you know be able to get you know, score more and get more rebounding. I think there's there's every reason to think to be optimistic about this team. And to your point, also the Big Ten is just going to be a little bit more random this year, and probably uh, it's there's there aren't the dominant teams. Somebody, somebody, or a couple of somebodies are going to emerge in the Big Ten. I yeah, don't right. I, I don't believe that we're going to see a situation where, you know, a team three teams tied for the Big Ten crown at 12 and eight. You know, I'm not saying <laughs> right, yeah. that, but I think trying to determine which couple of teams solve their problems best is very difficult right now because there's so much uncertainty. And so when you're trying to handicap that, 
I think, you know, you look at a team like in Illinois, well, on paper, there's a lot of talent, but it's almost all new via transfers or freshmen. It's all it's like an all-star team, right? It's right. like a, like, you a, know, yeah. Ohio state, even though I've got them picked third, Ohio state got a lot of new guys and new spots. You know, I think the reason primarily that I have Indiana where I've got them and Michigan state where I've got them is that those teams return more. They got more guys back in the roles that they were in last year. And that tends to matter, you know, that tends, I, I think if you're handicapping it, you, you have to look at it and say, well, the odds are probably a little better that those teams are going to more adequately address their weaknesses and their strengths are going to be stronger than some of these teams where it's much more of a jumbled picture. That's not a guarantee. I'm just talking about the odds. Yeah, right. Was it Judd Heathcote who said the good news is everyone's back and the bad news is everyone's back? Well, lots I, of yeah, lots of guys yeah, have said that. Yeah, but uh, but I in this sense I do think that Michigan State is. I think the pieces we've lost are not irre, are not irreplaceable, like I said before, and I do think that there's reason for optimism. The concern I have going into the season, aside from injuries, I mean, obviously that's always a concern. You know, you get the wrong injuries right. like Jade Aikens or something like that that can derail your season easily, and there's nothing you do about that. The concern I have for this season is the schedule, especially non-conference going into the Big Ten. Uh, not so much that we lose a lot of games, which is entirely possible, right? We're playing like number one team, Gonzaga, number what four team, Kentucky. Uh, Villanova is like 13th. Notre Dame's, I think, top 25. There's potential running into uh, Alabama's top 25. You're going to run into one or two other good teams at the PK80. <laughs> right. And even the even the non-conference, even the, like the, the weaker part teams, Brown is actually a pretty decent team, I guess, out of the Ivy. And Oakland's always a pest, and uh, there's really aren't many easy games. Northern in that, Arizona, and yeah, Northern Arizona is the is Northern Arizona is probably like the easy game, right? That's right. to open the season. Uh, and so, what I would worry about this team is that you have a let's say you get through that gauntlet, and you're like, I don't know, two and eight or something like that, and you're just getting beaten on by these teams. You're maybe a decent team, but you're just not measuring up to those other teams that you lose confidence and then it just spills over into the big 10 season. I mean, that would be my big concern with this schedule. I don't think that'll happen, but I think that'd be, my, that would be my concern because obviously that plays effect, right? If you start, if you win all those games, you go like eight and two, well, you feel really good going into the big 10 season. And you think for sure you're making the NCAA tournament. Cause you may have some big, you know, high level wins and with strength of schedule. But you know, the, that's just my, that's just my concern is that they drop a bunch of these games and then people start talking and then they, players hear this and they start where, you know, Joey said, where's about a shot again, all sorts of weird things can happen when you lose. That's the risk. Yes. And you know, you can look, the, the schedule is what it is at this point. It's not changing. So, um, would I prefer to see a, a couple of easier games? Yeah. But, um, I, I think that Izzo's done this long enough. I guess I'm not too worried about the team losing the team, the team falling apart psychologically. Could happen. I kind of doubt it. Um, I also think they're going to they're gonna be okay. I'm not saying they're going to run the table in these games by any means, but um, I think they're going to be okay. I really do. 
Um, I think some of these teams, you know, obviously Gonzaga and Kentucky right out of the chute, I expect to both be pretty good. Um, but some of these other teams, I don't think Villanova, I don't think we really know, you know, Jay Wright's gone. Um, you know, they're ranked highly, but that's largely on reputation at this point. We have to see, they lost a lot of guys from last year's team. It's not going to be the same team. It was a year ago. Um, Notre Dame. Eh. Yeah. And Notre Dame yeah. doesn't no, I feel really so. worry me. Alabama is going to be fascinating just because uh, there's been an inordinate <laughs> amount of attention paid to Alabama over the last couple of years because, you know, their head coach did some time at Romulus high. And I think there's a, a small segment of the MSU fan base that would really love the idea of Nate Oates being a guy to succeed Tom Izzo. Uh, I have two words for or, or three words for that. Won't ever happen. <laughs> You know, Alabama certainly is going to have talent, but the way that they play it uh, stylistically, um, let's just say, I think Michigan state will compete in that game. And then you just, so I I don't think this has to be any kind of disaster. We'll see. I mean, they're going to really get tested. There's no doubt about that, but you know, look at it the other way. If they come through it decently, if they're, you know, six and four, which with that schedule would, would be okay. Um, you know, you're probably feel you've one, you've learned a ton about your team. Yes. Two, there isn't anything the big Ten's going to throw at you that you haven't seen already really, um, in terms of quality style of play, et cetera. Um, so you should be well prepared for the league. You know, um, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm, I understand the, the concern to, to an extent Would I prefer, look, I, I hate the Gavit games. I think with, for Michigan state, I think it shouldn't exist. <laughs> so would I rather have a directional school instead of Villanova? Yeah, I would, but you know, whatever. It's, it's, yeah. Well, I can tell you as a season ticket holder, I'd much rather watch Villanova than Eastern Michigan. Of course. Yeah. Although, you know, I guess watching, you know, Monty Bates, if he's playing would be interesting, but this, this year uh, would be more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would. And to your point about the, the team, they come out six and four, but we definitely know they're tested. And I think, you know, you think they're going to be second, in the big 10. I think they're going to be win the big 10. I think we both are very up on this team. So if that's the case, if we really believe that, then we shouldn't be worried about the schedule. That's exactly the type well, of schedule you and, want them and, playing. And this, this, it's been less of an issue in recent years for whatever reasons, but years ago, I remember, um, feeling compelled to say that, you know, on the message boards or whatever, um, that for a program like Michigan state, because of the league they play in the bottom line is always, if you take care of business in the conference, the way you expect to, you're fine. Yeah. That's true for earning a bid. That's true for seeding purposes most years. Now this year we have to see how the big 10 really checks out. You know, we don't know yet. I don't think it's going to fall off a cliff, but is it going to be as strong a league as it's been in recent years? Or might this be a down year where, you know, maybe the league isn't quite as good as it's been collectively. Well, that's possible. Yeah, exactly. You don't know. Uh, you because of course it's always hard. You're very conference centric or you're team centric. It's, 
it's impossible to know what everything is going on at all the different places and other different conferences and leagues because yeah, there are a lot of transfers in this, in this conference and a lot of players moving around, but that's the case everywhere. And I think, I think with there are only 60 teams and out of 311 that didn't have transfers this year. So I've, I mean, I think Michigan State's one I of the few power I think fives. There's only, there's only six among power fives. Yeah. Six among power five. Yeah. So it's super. And you, you know, it's a, <laughs> so there's a lot of turnover, a lot of movement around. And so, I'm I actually I like the schedule. I do like watching the games. It's more interesting. Uh, I do. I mean, obviously I like winning. So in some ways you'd rather win a bunch of games, but playing a, a schedule like Ohio State where they're I think it's like the 300 300th ranked strength of schedule or something like that going or maybe 270th. Yeah, you uh, just because they play like one good team, and then it's like, what do you what do you learn? Well, yeah, you're you're eleven and one going into the Big Ten play or something right, like that. But you after haven't, the first you week, haven't but, figured anything out, and, and right, exactly. We we've seen this over and over and over in Tom Izzo's tenure. You know, so it's it's nothing new in that respect. So I don't know. I don't, it, it's a concern, but it's not a major one for me because I think it all comes out in the wash eventually. Yeah, I think so. My and then I guess my only other concern with that gauntlet is if if you have someone like Jane Aikens who is turns out he's actually not ready to go, that really makes it a, a struggle being competitive in a lot of those games, and so then then that really kind of sets you back and, and hurts you. But you know, like you said, there's nothing you do about that anyway. So there's not, and and as of right now, I don't seem to sense any panic that he won't be ready so right it's not like the mill tucker where he's sore and he'll be ready when he's ready we actually right. have some sort of updates right. from exactly. time so yeah uh so i mean the other question the other big question is what's going to happen to the five we talked about this quite a bit you know i i think i think my my take on it on the five is that we can we can at least tread water compared to where we were last year and I think there's a potential to be be better. I think, you know, offensively from a backup standpoint is if you have Marble versus Kohler, I think probably we're going to be better. I think the question is, is Sissoko going to be as good as Bingham or close enough to him that you're not having a big drop off there? And then, of course, you got Cooper, who's, you know, may play some role in that as well. Wild so card, I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not as worried about the five as maybe other people are. And I think we actually have pretty good depth there. I know people thought you'd need to bring another five in, but I don't know, I don't know what for unless you think... With his total incompetence at the five, right? Once they signed Cooper, it made that moot. There, yeah, there was right. an argument that, okay, the third guy, there's room for a third guy. And then when they added Cooper, it was clear they weren't going to do that. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, part of me, statistically, you look at what Michigan State got out of the five spot last year, and it was about 15 points a night between Bainham and Marble. Um almost 10 boards, not terrible production, but it never felt to me, well, I should say from January on, it never felt to me like Michigan State was nearly good enough. They might not be good enough this year either, but I'm okay with rolling the dice on guys who have unanswered questions and have the potential perhaps to be that or be better. Um, I don't think Mati Sissoko is likely to score nine points a game the way Marcus Bingham did. He might not even score the six that Julius Marble did. But could he be an effective rebounder and an effective defender for them? Yes. 
I think it is possible. Now we got to see, can he stay on the floor? That's a big question. Jackson Kohler, uh, Jackson Kohler could be, I could see him being a guy who in 12 minutes a night scores nine points on average. Mm -hmm. I could absolutely see that because I think when he's on the floor, he's going to be very productive offensively. So you have that card to play that if you feel like you need more production, you've got a guy who can probably get it for you, but can he do enough of the other things? We don't know. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, I would never tell anybody, oh, the MSU's got it solved. It's, it's not a question mark. Of course, it's a question mark. It's the biggest one they've got. But I don't think, I don't think we know how it will be answered just yet. And I'll, I'll say this much. Tom Izzo um, made a conscious decision to go at it this way. He's not interested in losing games. <laughs> no. Okay. Now he could be wrong. He could be wrong, but at the very least people should understand going in that he believes he's got enough to win with and how much that matters to you. I guess that's in the eye of the beholder. For me, it matters. It carries some weight. The fact that he felt this combination of players was good enough to get it done. Okay, that that has some sway. That carries some weight with me. Well, and I don't think, you know, we're not apologists here for Tom Izzo. We're not, I don't think. Uh, oh, he not, could be wrong. Right, but I, but I don't think also that we're not, we don't look at him critically and sort of what decisions he's made. I think, you know, in general, you defer to the person who's been successful through his career. And he's, and I mean, he hasn't missed an NCAA tournament came close once or twice but that's still amazing i mean that's an amazing and that's the that's really the point is when i say he's not interested in losing games um he's he's not running a charity this isn't oh i feel badly for Marty because he's been here two years and he hasn't really gotten a chance let's (laughs) give him a chance that's that's not what this is he believes that this is a player who with the proper development can be really effective for them. Now, has he reached that point yet? Well, we're all going to find out together, but I, again, if, if my choices are Tom Izzo's opinion or um, Joe Spartan fan, nine, six, five, four, four, four on Twitter, (laughs) which way am I going? Doesn't mean Izzo's right. If I've got to weigh that out, you know, and again, it's that isn't just, well, I defer to the coach because he's the coach. No, I'm deferring to the guy who's in the Hall of Fame. Right. Yeah. And exactly who's done it, as you said, who's never missed a tournament, knows better than anybody else what it takes to compete in this conference because he's done it longer and better than anybody else. I mean, I don't even think that's a particularly close call myself, you know, in terms of where you put your faith internet randos or, you know, <laughs> the guy who actually sees Madi Sissoko every day. So here's an interesting uh, thought I just had. And let's imagine a, a scenario where Madi Sissoko is actually everything we hope he's going to be. And he's able, he's, he's able to stay out there. He's able to rebound. He's able to avoid significant foul trouble. Kohler is offensively what we think he is defensively. He's okay. He's got, he's able to move and, uh, but, and, and Cooper actually is able to be, someone who can give you some 
significant minutes, maybe like, you know, 10 minutes a game, quality minutes. Um, at some point, Joey Hauser is going to go out of the game. He's not going to play 40 minutes a game. And so at the four spot, you know, you could say, well, you've got Malik Hall who can come in behind him or maybe Pierre Brooks. But could you imagine a scenario where you have Sissoko out there, maybe a Kohler, maybe have Kohler, maybe no. they're playing the four and the five no. together, or do you think that's not something that would ever happen? I don't, I, I think if that happened, you'd be asking for big trouble because, you know, I think there were, there were again, internet randos who um, wanted to believe that because they saw Jackson Kohler hit some threes and clips that he could play the four, but there are question marks with Jackson being able to handle the five right now. <laughs> yeah. If that's a problem, how do you think he's going to do chasing six, six guys around as he would have to do at times right, guarding right. the four at Michigan state, you are what you can guard. So no, the answer to that is no, I think. And you don't four, think Sissoko could do either, right? You don't no, think it could be a no, flip. None of their fives. Those guys are fives. Um, it's going to be Hauser and Hall. And maybe you might have Brooks for spot minutes, but Hauser and Hall, as long as those guys are healthy, MSU's fine. And then the other thing, of course, is because Hall's not going to exclusively play the three. I mean, I think right. they're going to start him there, but he's going to play plenty of minutes at the four. So then what happens with rebounding this year? Because I think you pointed out, and if anyone who's been a longtime listener to the show knows that the rebounding has been an issue, and it, and despite what the the announcers say during the games, like you know, Michigan State always dominates the re, the, re, the boards. It hasn't been the case the last couple of years uh, that right. we've been, I suppose, better than average. But that's not been average yeah, for Michigan State, yeah. right? That's that's definitely a big drop off. And so, and so much depends on that, right? Getting rebounds, clearing the boards, which helps you in defense, obviously, but also getting the break going. All those things are important. And if you're not able to do that, uh, you know, it causes all kinds of other problems with the team. And then, then other issues that are not normally as big issues like turnover percentage and, you know, those things obviously become bigger issues when you can't, you can't rebound and, and then they become, I think it's, I think it's the big unknown with this team. Um, I know this much. I have, I have reasonably good faith in Joey Hauser as a rebounder. I think that a guy like Jay Nakins, if he plays the minutes, I anticipate he will play. I think he can be a very good rebounder. I think Malik Hall can be a decent rebounder, but it's other guys, you know, the five, the guys at the five, that's an unknown. We got to see how they hold it down. And then the rest of the perimeter group, you know, can Pierre, Pierre Brooks is a guy who to me should be a very good rebounder. Can he contribute the way I think he can, you know, can Hogard be an effective rebounder from the point, maybe a little better than they've had. In the yeah. past, he's shown signs. So I don't think it would take a lot to be better because, frankly, they were pretty damn bad last year. So <laughs> it's not like, it's not like, oh, God, how do we ever surpass that? They they could be better just with a, a better mentality. We're going to have to see that. I mean, this is not going to be a huge team. So we know that coming in. There's not a, this is not a particularly big team. Um, you know, at the five, Mahdi can play bigger than his listed height because of his weight spam, but Kohler's not a huge guy. Cooper's big, but how much is he, he going to play? play? Yeah, right. You know, Hauser is what he is. Hall is what he is. So they're not particularly big, but that doesn't necessarily mean much. Um, I think there's a chance they could be better 
They need to be better. Can they be better? Uh, will they be better? I guess is what I should say. I don't know, but they, they've got to be, they've just got to be, they got to be better. You know, second chance points on offense would be a huge deal if they can get more of that going. But man, the biggest thing by far to me is defensive rebounding, just ending possessions one and done, not giving teams second chances that would go such a long way toward improving their defense. And so then overall, I mean, obviously you think they're second in the Big Ten. I think they're first. But any other thoughts about the team? I mean, do you think I, – I, I think overall this is the most optimistic I've been in for a team for a couple of years. Maybe it's – so I don't know. I mean, well, I, that's just how I feel. I just – I see a lot of potential here, and I think a lot of – there's a lot of reason to be optimistic. I think – you know, I think it's funny because – if you if you took the temperature of at least the internet fan base of Michigan State <laughs> in April, it was you know this team is going to finish you know ten and twenty one, right? Um, yeah, right. And I never believed that was the case, and and especially as you saw it start to take shape, and and you started seeing what the rest of the Big Ten looked like, it became pretty obvious to me that now Michigan State's actually sitting in pretty good position. Um, they need some things to break the right way. This is this is not by Tom Izzo standards one of his great teams in terms of talent level. But I say that it's also hard to fully assess that because I think they've got a lot of guys who could take steps forward this year. You know, if Jay Nakeds becomes the player I think most believe him capable of being, well you might have a guy who's actually capable of being a focal point, you know? Um, If Malik Hall finds a level of consistency, you might have another guy who's capable of being a focal point, you know? Um, So I I, I think I'm optimistic too, obviously, because of where I picked them, but I'm also going to be honest. I'd say the same thing about Michigan State that I've said about virtually everybody else. If you told me they won it, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me they finished eighth. I wouldn't be surprised. This team could, could have a rough go. I mean, I think there's a floor below which it's pretty tough to imagine them falling, but, um, you know, could they have another 11 and nine ish type season in the league? Sure. It's possible. But when I compare them to these other teams, and I look at the guys in the backcourt, that's what makes me think that's probably not going to happen. I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. We've been talking about all the summer. I've never actually focused this much attention on Michigan State basketball, <laughs> certainly in the offseason. So it's uh, it, it's going to be a fun ride, I think. And uh, we're only a couple weeks away. It's hard to believe my I've got the email that my tickets are in the mail. So I'll be up in Breslin before you know it, eating my ice cream sandwiches. I want to remind everyone that we do have the predicting the Big Ten contest. Uh, you can enter at eric at tffinots.com or you can just go to the final four is not in the schedule.com and then you can uh, you can just contact us through email there and give us a prediction between 1, one through 14 on what you think the standings will be, final standings for the Big Ten, and then the tiebreaker would be how many points Michigan State scores against Michigan. Uh, please visit our site. We have the forum, which is going to really start moving, I think, quite a bit. And as we get closer to the season start, there's a lot of fun discussions on there. You can have opportunity to get interact more closely with Rod if you'd like. Until the next time, the final four is on the schedule. Go green.
At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way. Offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.